The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when the godfather of cyberpunk fiction in the 1980s turns his prophetic speculations of the future to the year 2021? With this proffered world of mysterious neural viral plagues, pharmaceutical conspiracies, and virtual reality headsets remain a quaint failed cinema prophecy forever frozen in the 1990s? Or do Rubik's Cube VR hacking and heroin-addicted military dolphin actually have some counterpoints in the current modern days? Well, let's find out. Because today we are virtually scanning Robert Longo's 1995 Johnny Mnemonic. So sit back, hook up your neural networks, and prepare to hack your brain as we transport ourselves to the future, a bleak but hopeful landscape of a dystopic time, also known as January of 2021. Brought to you by Entering the Internets, How to Pair Your PVC Knee Pads with Your Chainmail, The Bittersweet Plight of Retired Junkie Naval Code Cracking Fish, and The One True Human Savior, Iced Tea. And of course, our safe word today is offline. Anything to add, Benji? Jesus wept! Stop saying Jesus wept. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my God! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. London. Hey, how we doing? Yo, Benji. Not, okay, so uh, what I extra love is that technically Jesus Wept is in our intro, and yet that was not a reference to our intro, but to a different Jesus Wept. Yes, the Jesus Wept in our intro is the famous ending-ish line to the first Hellraiser movie, but the Jesus Wept that I just did is a reference to the season six episode of Community, where the Dean gets a, well, very appropriate for this movie style VR headsets and is overcome by the technological wonder that is mid-90s CGI and just constantly keeps saying, Jesus wept! It's an amazing Community episode, but I'm just saying, they're they're different references. Nuance. It's all about the nuance between the Jesus wept. You have to really fine-tune your Jesus wept, you know, when you put those out there. Because Hellraiser doesn't have as much to do with this movie, but Community does. And why is that, Bungie? What did we watch for today? Today, we watched the finest film ever made by Robert Longo, 1995's (laughs) Johnny Mnemonic. And you know what? I felt that we need to do a film that takes place in the here and the now. The year that we are upon, more or less, depending on when you listen to this. And not only that, a movie that takes place in January of 2021, and that movie is Johnny Mnemonic. 1995, Johnny Mnemonic. 1995's Johnny Mnemonic, starring 1995 Keanu Reeves. Yeah, this is a movie. This is what people in 1995 said, okay, 2021, we got your number. This is what it's going to be like. 
And it's really fun to see there are some things in here that are strangely accurate in some ways, or not accurate exactly, but closer to 2021 as one might have anticipated. In ways that they didn't mean to. I'd say giant mnemonic, since it doesn't go too overboard with the crazy tech outside of, you know, the brain implants. VR vision. VR vision. It's not too far off from where we are now. I mean, it's still very far off, but just not as far off as Back to the Future Part 2 was. Okay, so lightning summary, just to give people an idea. In the future, January of 2021, to be exact, (laughs) the world has been taken over by a mysterious viral electronic plague, which isn't great. Meanwhile, certain people have purposefully scooped out their memories or something like that to make room for gigabyte data drives in order to carry information more securely from one point to another by anyone who will pay them to do so. So basically, we're looking at a future in which like mail carriers are these sexy John Wick style <laughs> cyber ninjas. Oh, if only. So, you know, premise. Ugh. And this film, this... <laughs> little gem of a film, is going to tell the story of one of those data carriers, a.k.a. Keanu Reeves, a.k.a. Johnny Mnemonic, who is going to get hired to carry out one last job. And of course, shit is going to go wrong, because even in these 2021 cyberpunk dystopic features, we still have these cliched script tropes of, it's just one more job. What could happen? Everything. Who writes this shit? Well, (laughs) funny you should ask. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm so glad you asked because many people will likely be familiar with the name William Gibson. So William Gibson is going to be a sort of godfather figure of cyberpunk. And he is most well known for writing the novel Neuromancer in 1984, which is really going to solidify this concept of quote-unquote cyberpunk. And so we'll talk about cyberpunk here in a little bit. But he is going to write a short story in 1981, even before Neuromancer, called Johnny Mnemonic. That is still findable in some of his short story collections. I think it's in Burning Chrome, which is a great title for Mm -hmm. short stories. Oh, yeah. But this is the the titular Johnny Mnemonic short story. How do you spell that? (laughs) This is another word like (laughs) lieutenant. It's not as bad as lieutenant, but I kept fucking up the spelling. (laughs) (laughs) I crossed the board. Like, I knew it started with an M. It was like, I knew it was an M-N, and then, like, shit went downhill from there. I've actually known how to spell mnemonic from a very early age because there's an episode of Full House where Stephanie's in a spelling bee, and she fucks up this word. I was going to say, do you know a mnemonic device to spell mnemonic? Is that why you know... I guess my mnemonic device is the episode where mnemonic is mentioned in Full House. Fair enough. See, the life lessons that came out of 90s sitcoms, they're important and integral. Yes, All right, so, but short story, giant mnemonic, Yeah, short story. And then we're going to get William Gibson again and Robert Longo getting together and saying, hey, we want to make a movie of this short story. William Gibson is going to write the screenplay. And Robert Longo is going to direct it, his first and only time directing a feature film, (laughs) which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Robert Longo is primarily, in his 
his primary occupation, I guess we should say, is as an artist. And he is probably most well-known in the art world for this series of paintings that he did called Men in the Cities. And these started to come out in 1979 and had a run through the 80s. They are almost iconic art images from the 1980s. They were a very specific aesthetic, very, very cool. And a lot of them were these portraits, mostly in graphite, pencil, and charcoal, if I can remember my art history correctly, that were men and women in these black and white type of outfits, like very Wall Street 80s type of costuming in all of these bent weird poses that were very contorted and effective on an emotion scale. And it captured this certain kind of weird combination of this strange punk ethos mixed with the rise of Wall Street. It's a very interesting kind of blend. If you see these images now, they actually look very kind of like the early 2001 indie music scene to me. Like they look like album covers from Mm. a much later time period. And so we have, I will say that we have been posting visual aids to some of the things that we talk about on our Instagram and Twitter handles. We finally got around to setting those up. Mm -hmm. So if you want to see visuals of Men in the City, then it will be at Cinema of Cruelty on Insta and Twitter. Yeah, I couldn't get our MySpace working, though. Oh, we should set up a MySpace (laughs) just to be that cruel. Technically, I think MySpace (laughs) is still a thing. Is it? Oh, my God. I want a MySpace page so bad. Make it happen, Veggie. MySpace.com. What happens if I type that in? You have one value to me now, and that is there is still to MySpace. Set up a MySpace page. MySpace is still a thing. Wow. Fuck yeah. How about right. you know, fuck it? Yeah, I'm am doing yeah, let's that. Let's do I'm, it. We're setting up <laughs> yeah. Cinema of Cruelty. MySpace. <laughs> All right. So now get on our top eight. <laughs> at Cinema of Cruelty available on Insta, Twitter, and MySpace. MySpace. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Why not? <laughs> So yeah, Robert Longo, um, great artist. He's going to direct this film. William Gibson's going to write the screenplay. Or is he? He is, actually, (laughs) for the most part. Or is he, London? I say this because William Gibson apparently has denied that his script ended up in the film. Yeah, well, whose script is it, then? Take responsibility, Gibson. (laughs) No, I mean, to be fair, these two men wanted to set forth and do a very artsy, low-budget project. So they apparently went around in the early 90s trying to get financing to do this art project. Mm. And they were just looking for a million dollars. And they couldn't get it. But then Sony Pictures was like, okay, so word on the street is there's this thing called the internet. And we'd really like to make a movie, capitalize on this concept that you got going on here about the ways of the future when embedded in the net. We will give you $26 million to do this. And they're like, we just want a million, though. And they're like, well, you have $26 million. And in that process, something happened where these two men who had never made a major motion picture before didn't know how to make one, especially one with $26 million. There's a quote here by Longo in um, a Wired interview after the fact, which he stated that this film started out as an arty $1.5 million movie, and it became a $30 million movie because we couldn't get a million and a half. And they didn't really know what to do with that. And we see that result of that like uncertainty <laughs> in the film. This film's going to come out first in Japan, and it's going to have a very different cut. 
than the American one. So that's another <sighs> thing we're going to talk yeah. about is that Sony really wanted to just carve this thing up. God, diving into that got really weird after a while. Yes. One of the major things we'll be pointing out throughout, we will be talking a little bit about what cyberpunk is and where it comes up in this, as well as what the technology was at the time in the 90s that they're trying to display here where VR was at and where the internet was at. We'll also be looking at the differences between the American and the Japanese cut and like why that was a thing. And I will also be pointing out a little bit the differences between the short story and the screenplay. I will also be telling you about weaponized dolphins. When we say short story, we are talking short story. It's Okay, it's so short. It's 20 pages of story. So you can see why they wanted to make something small and artistic for just a million dollars. Probably just looking to make something that was maybe 80 minutes long. I think I've heard they wanted to do it in black and white. Interesting. Longo said it was going to be something akin to Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville, which was a French New Wave film from the 1960s. Black and white would be weird for a cyberpunk film, I would think. I mean, I guess like you've got Tetsuo and stuff, and that is in black and white. So I guess... There are black and white cyberpunk films, yeah. but cyberpunk's so associated with those neon lights and those colors and the circuitry and I don't know. I was honestly a little disappointed that that movie didn't happen because I'd be fascinated to see that a black and white take on cyberpunk. All right. Yeah. So what the fuck is cyberpunk, I guess, is one of the questions here. Cyberpunk is defined as this idea of high tech, low life, and it is a combo of AI and cybernetic advancement coupled with social breakdown is the very boiled down mm. definition, I guess, of cyberpunk. This is a term that's not actually going to be coined by Gibson, though. It's going to come to us from Bruce Bethke, and he had a short story also titled Cyberpunk that appeared in 1980, and it was Thanks, written in Bruce. 1980. It was published in 1983 in Amazing Stories, and so this is where that term kind of comes to us from. And this is going to, this idea of cyberpunk's really going to grow out of the new wave of science fiction that happened in the 60s and the 70s with a lot of social critique. So that's when Philip K. Dick was writing. So a lot of people also attribute Philip K. Dick as like another sort of pre-godfather. Mm -hmm. He was like the grand-grandfather because sure, yeah. he was technically a new wave guy, <laughs> but he's going to have a little stuff mm -hmm. like sprinkled in. And a lot of the early examples of this are going to be, of course, we mentioned Neuromancer in 1984. And that's really going to solidify cyberpunk as this blend of like punk and hacker ethos in the early 80s. Japan is going to come out with Akira in 1982. So that's going to be... Fuck yeah. God damn, Akira is so cool. Yeah, so that that's going to be like a oh. big kind of foundational aesthetic. Yeah. Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's movie Blade Runner is going to come out in 1982. And that's going to be based on a Philip K. Dick novel, although... Its aesthetics actually borrow more heavily from Gibson's short stories because Philip K. Dick doesn't quite have in the 60s and 70s, right, isn't going to quite have that 80s technology vibe yeah. going on yet. So it's a very different sort of feel when you read the short story. But one of the strongest influences for Blade Runner in its aesthetic was Gibson's short story, Johnny Mnemonic. So <laughs> we have that all kind of like coming back and uh, yeah, intersecting. Uh, so like cyberpunk was this interesting, just convoluted, mangled mass. It's very interesting to try to kind of unweave cyberpunk's like early foundational history because it was all happening at the same time transnationally. And so this is just like, yeah, the very broad, broad strokes. And 
the tropes of cyberpunk are going to be these console jockeys, as they're called, these renegade Han Solo slash noir detectives, but that sit at their computers and have these almost mystical hacking computer knowledge and skills. And that these private corporations are going to rule the world and noir landscapes are big. So the sun is generally inexplicably gone in some way, or most of the things take place at night. And there's a real cool combination in cyberpunk of information technology and the body itself. Kind of like our titular Johnny Mnemonic, who's going to have biohacking all over, well, I guess not all over his body, but at least in his brain. So he's going to have these hard drives implanted into his wet tissue. And so, yeah, it's, it's all about the wetware, mm-hmm. which is your biology, combined with the hardware, which is, yeah, oh. your, your tech. It's, it's a hard, wet, wet world, you know. Mm. And that is that's cyberpunk, and I really broken down, really bastardized, broken firm down. Is it wetware, soft wetware? What? How how firm is the wet on the wear? Uh, that really depends on the author, and you know what little cyberpunk world you're carving out. Sometimes it's a little wetter, sometimes it's a little harder. You know, I'll try anything. It's getting once. a little graphic and good. obscene. Oh, I know you will. All right, moving on. <laughs> What is the best thing about this film, Benji? So, best thing, worst thing is going to be a little weird this week. There are so many things I love about this film. I love the style that it's going for. I love the aesthetic. I love that Keanu Reeves chose to do this movie after Speed. Uh, I love Ice-T in it. I love Henry Rollins in it. All of these things I say I love. And I always have to add on to that. I love... X, which is a shame because this is a bad movie. <laughs> and I know we normally don't just throw out the a bland label like bad movie. This is a bad movie. This is a movie whose intentions of entertaining and storytelling are not good and do not follow through. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're going to have to qualify quote-unquote bad movie because yes. there are multiple different ways to be bad and there's not really a delineating scale. No, so. there there is not. A bad movie is a very subjective thing. To me, there are so many great things about this movie and it's a shame because it's just a bad movie. Mine is actually kind of in the same boat where it's hard for me to pick a best and worst thing because I guess... The worst thing about it is its wasted potential in some ways, because there are parts of it, like you said, that are just really, really great. A lot of the texture in this film, a lot of the performances, and yet in each of those things that are great, there's something lacking. And so this movie does not entertain as much as I feel like it should, given all of the elements that are being brought to the table. And I can't quite put my finger on it exactly or I guess I can't single out like one reason one exclusive reason as to why this movie doesn't quite work not necessarily on like a quote-unquote good movie scale but even on a bad movie scale right because there's tons of really amazing bad movies that are incredibly watchable Mm -hmm. and incredibly entertaining yeah and this one I just feel like it should be in that category and it doesn't quite make it but a lot of its individual Mm. parts are just so fantastic yeah it's so strange but getting into this film specifically in terms of the parts that work and the parts that just don't amount to the sum of their parts this film opens with some scroll text 
All right, opening scroll. Second decade of the 21st century. Corporations rule. The world is threatened by a new plague. NAS, nerve attenuation syndrome, fatal, epidemic. Its cause and cure are unknown. The corporations are opposed by the low-techs, a resistance movement risen from the streets. Hackers, data pirates, guerrilla fighters in the info wars. The corporations defend themselves. They hired the Yakuza, the most powerful of all criminal syndicates. They sheath their data in black ice, lethal viruses waiting to burn the brains of intruders. But the low-techs wait in their strongholds, in the old city cores, like rats in the walls of the world. The most valuable information must sometimes be entrusted to mnemonic couriers, elite agents who smuggle data in wet-wired brain implants. So we're given, like, our opening premise, yeah. right, that we've got a lot of core cyberpunk themes here and cyberpunk is going to be very concerned in some ways with this idea that the governments usually in cyberpunk worlds have collapsed a little bit and that corporations and privatized corporations are really going to be what rules and drives forces of the narrative and is kind of this mm -hmm. malicious presence or shadow over the dystopic world that's a big cyberpunk theme and we're getting that here. Corporations rule. And there's a plague, a plague on humanity, a very strange viral pandemic. Oh, imagine NAS. such a thing. <laughs> that was the thing that was really surprising because I forgot before when I went back to watch this when we had pitched like, oh, let's do Johnny Mnemonic because it's like 2021. Yeah. That would be fun. Then it opens right up with this. So there's this like viral pandemic that has swept the globe. I'm like, well, that's oddly accurate. Oh, uh, yeah. We, you know, we have to mention we have really refrained from bringing up Corona, COVID 19. We assume you guys know about it, you're aware. But by God, this movie suddenly feels way more relevant than it should because of this plot point. Yeah. And out of all of the things for this prophetic 2021 world to come close to. I was not expecting yeah. <laughs> a viral pandemic plot. I was like, oh, okay. And Ooh. so that is kind of interesting. It's going to be a very different type of viral pandemic, though, than what actual 2020 has been going through. And that is with this NAS nerve attenuation syndrome. This is also going to be called the black shakes at some point. It's caused by an overexposure to electromagnetic radiation from omnipresent technological devices. And it's presented as this sort of, yeah, raging pandemic from the exposure to electronics. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be another thing that's very prevalent in cyberpunk and in Gibson's writing particularly, because William Gibson, very technophobic Luddite, which is fascinating <laughs> because so he's strange, like yeah. one of the main, you know, founders mm -hmm. of this cyberpunk subgenre of, you know, this very technologically saturated world. But usually cyberpunk is very bittersweet, critical about mm -hmm. technology. And so it tracks. But yeah, this is going to be a viral, viral disease, the dual <laughs> uh. phraseology of virus as both computer and biological. And that's a big thing with cyberpunk is this combination of the computer and the biological, the hardware and the wetware. Yeah. This is actually very similar now to there is a condition. It's not an official medical condition that is called electromagnetic hypersensitivity or EHS. Ooh. It would be probably the closest real world equivalent that 
would develop in the millennium. I'm trying to think like what the lame slang term that would evolve in our world would be for that, like black shakes is for NAS. Like, oh, they got the e-hypes. Watch out. <laughs> the e-hypes. <laughs> no, it is a claim sensitivity to electromagnetic fields in which negative symptoms are attributed, although what these symptoms are kind of range across the board. This is not a recognized medical diagnosis, but it is something that has been studied as the first official study I could find on it was in 1997, hmm. and that another study in 2013 found that self-reporting of EHS has actually been on the decline, which is interesting because technology is still on the rise, but it seemed like this was very specifically a condition that a lot of people were worried about developing or experiencing specifically in the sort of turn of the millennium and the early aughts, as it were. Mm. One last thing to say about this opening scroll or whatever, it's pointless. You could really get away with just not having this at the front of the movie at all because there's nothing in this thing that we don't find out later on in the movie, be it through the plot or through dialogue or newscasts or anything like that. So really, it's just a really great way to slow the pace of your movie down really quickly uh, at the start with completely pointless text. I assume that this is one of the places in which William Gibson probably wants to reject the script a little bit as his own, because this does not feel like something that Gibson would have put in. Mm. And that's because Gibson generally likes to, sort of like Walter Hill, he likes to just open in media race. Yeah. He just likes to open in the middle of things and let people figure out what the fuck is going on. Because like in contrast, the short story will open, first of all, the short story is in the first person, which kind of annoyed me a little bit, but Oh, whatever. I dug it. I, li I liked that part of it. I thought that was See, kind of I, I just, I have this, like, weird bias against fiction written in the first person. I, I don't know. like it. I just kept that's a hearing it in Keanu Reeves's voice the whole time. I was on my way to see Ralphie. Yeah, the short story is going to open with just this idea of, like, I shoved my antique shotgun into my designer Adidas bag and like kind of just, you know, he's just going to go. He's just shoving a gun into yeah. a bag and he's going and as, he's going somewhere. We don't know. As you do. Off he goes. And we're like, we don't know who this guy is. Mm -hmm. We don't know why he has a gun. We don't know why he cares about Adidas so much, but like <laughs> this is apparently important to him and he's going to go and do some violence. And you're like, all right. So it's a very different kind of cold opening. There's also going to be times throughout the script that I think that Gibson's script does a really nice job of having a lot of places where there could be exposition, but instead he sort of circumvents the exposition a little bit, and mm -hmm. we can deduce things from the sentence. And so that seems to be more Gibson's way, even with the rest of the screenplay. So this does seem a little out of place here. But yeah, we're, we're given this setup. Opening now, after our scrolled opening. Finally, we get into some good mid-90s CGI. And in terms of mid-90s CGI, this is actually really good stuff. We are in... The internet. <laughs> yes. The internet. Inside the internet. This is where I think I re when I was rewatching this and I saw that it said the internet 2021. That's why I realized, oh, my God, we need to talk about this movie because it's going to be 2021 really soon. And yes. it's so strange that mid 90s there were this movie and I think hackers, too, which I know we're going to circle around and talk about someday, too, were movies that tried to help you visualize the internet as this physical place or thing. 
Which is wonderful. Because people were very confused on what the internet was back then. They were. They were so confused. I'll preface this for a second. So the yeah. World Wide Web is mm-hmm. going to... I mean, you had ARPANET and stuff like that that way predated the 90s. Mm-hmm. But the World Wide Web is not going to come about until... 1993 is when it first went public. And so this movie is coming out in 1995. This is two years after this like worldwide web thing mm-hmm. had actually hit the public domain. And that's crazy to think about. But yeah, if there's something new, right? Like people aren't really fully going to understand it. And the internet was a weird concept to try to explain to people. Keep in mind, I think this is back when people were still referring to all that as the information superhighway or using ridiculous metaphors like that for the it's internet. It's not a ridiculous metaphor. That's an awesome metaphor. <laughs> Everyone should use the information superhighway more often. <laughs> I, I guess we'll do that, too. I mean, we've we've started a MySpace account now, so we're going to... Yes. Our MySpace yes, account you that, that you'll really find... Am. On the information superhighway, folks, I'm not joking. I am making a MySpace page. This is going to be a thing. I don't know if it's going to work, but by God, I'll try. By God, we're going to try. And by we, I mean you. And we will make sure that it plays a song way too loud on your computer speakers when you're not expecting it. Ah, MySpace. Good times. (laughs) So, yes, the resurrection. MySpace, the resurrection. Now... Yeah, it's very cool to have this, like, physical view. And the graphics are actually pretty good here for 1995. Yeah. They're sharp. They seem to be more like animation than computer-generated images, actually. I bet there's a mix of it. were animated to look like CGI, because they seemed almost too good for CGI for 1995. Well, one thing that we didn't mention about the differences between the Japanese version and the American version. They are edited slightly differently. There are a few extra scenes. The Japanese version is about 8 minutes, 45 seconds longer. But a really big difference is that they have completely different scores. The music... is crazy. Yeah, the music is totally different in each of these. So, really quick, here's the opening music from the American version. Giant mnemonic. Title comes up, and then we go into cyberspace. So you kind of get an idea of the mm-hmm. general mood. This here's the Japanese music. And that's the exact same clip from the movie. It's when we're in the internet. And right away, you can tell the stark difference that's there. The American version seems to have this slight ethereal mood that's trying to create, whereas the Japanese version, I think, is... The music is way better in the Japanese version. It has this, like, industrial synth feel to it. (laughs) Some, like, this pulsing... It's got, like, a rock influence. Yeah, it's way more gritty and hardcore. And I think, told, it works so much better for the, the feel that this movie should be going for. So, just overall, music in the Japanese version, way better. All the other editorial changes throughout the movie, Japanese versus American version, aside from the extra scenes, which we'll get into, they're all really weird minor edits. It's really strange. Yeah, very bizarre. I don't have any facts to back this up, so my working hypothesis as to why these two soundtracks might be 
different, sonically speaking, is that cyberpunk is largely going to be a subgenre of the 1980s that is prophesizing the new millennium of technology. And then we've got this movie coming out 15 years later, mm. right? Like this movie's coming out in 1995, which is actually kind of in the middle, which is sort of interesting. <laughs> it's a little bit late for the cyberpunk and it's a little bit early for the time that cyberpunk was predicting. And so one of the things that's particularly going to come apparent in this opening scene is that they're really going to embrace this 1980s aesthetic in this 1990s movie, but like, and the future in the way that later steampunk is going to model itself after cyberpunk and become a genre on what the Victorians would imagine the future to be like retroactively, mm -hmm. right? Like if steam power had maintained being the dominant technology, sure. cyberpunk is what the future would look like if cyber circuitry sort of like if computers in a 1980s way had remained the dominant technology then what would the future look like and so the 90s are kind of overlooked in this movie and so i'm wondering if the 80s sound sort of this weird synth sound that happens on the american score sounds very much like the u.s 1980s music scene mm. So I'm wondering if then the 1980s music scene in Japan sounded a little bit more like this, a little bit more with industrial and rock influences, in which case to really grasp that kind of 80s nostalgia mm, within I the see. sonic landscape, so, you actually need to carve out these different spaces. Kind of like that these soundtracks are localized factors for different versions of the movie. Yeah, to kind of just evoke a different, slightly different nostalgia for the 1980s cyberpunk yeah. movement. The American soundtrack sounds like a little bit more like a watered-down Vangelis, like Blade Runner mm -hmm. type of score, whereas this one sounds a little bit more like a watered-down, like Akira score or something. <laughs> We'd have to compare those yeah. next, but that's my hypothesis, oh. is that they're drawn from two different 80s nostalgia camps. With all that being said, the Japanese version is the correct one. Just want to put that out there. As it usually is, but... That know. would be my recommendation. If you can find the Japanese version of it through various means, get your VPN going, then um, definitely do that because the Japanese version of this movie is actually pretty cool. Yeah. I prefer it to the American version. No, most people do. Ultimate consensus on the Japanese version is if you don't like the movie at all, the Japanese version's not going to help that. True. Like, it's not going to make you like Johnny Mnemonic if mm -hmm. you didn't before. But if there's something that you like about Johnny Mnemonic, you'll probably like the Japanese version better. Yeah, I, I dig it. I dig it. Speaking of Johnny Mnemonic. All of that. Yeah, speaking of Johnny Mnemonic, at cyberspace, there is like this weird sparkly ball flying around. It flies down a tube, and we meet our hero. Sort of. Johnny Mnemonic, played by Just Made Speed, Keanu Reeves. Yes. So he's going to wake up in the new Darwin Inn, which is cute. <laughs> <you know. laughs> okay, yeah. It's 10.30 a.m. on January 17th, 2021. The local temperature is 29 degrees Celsius or 84 degrees Fahrenheit in January. So what up, global warming? Called that shit. Yeah, you know what they didn't call? The right day of the week. It says that Thursday, January 17th this year is on a Sunday. Ha! Oh, fail, fail. I know, right. what the fuck? You couldn't have looked up 26 years into the future and... Just, you know, why, what's so hard about that, Robert Longo?
Good lord, man. Not not particularly important to him. What is important to him is that goddamn beautiful triangle light that's above Johnny Mnemonic's bed. <laughs> it's beautiful. This is a fucking awesome hotel room th- that he's in right now, I have to say. So there's these blue light accents in this very peach room with a lot of dark furniture and the black bed sheets. And automatically you're like, yes, this is a room from an alternative 1980s hotel because everything about that color palette just screams 1980s to me. And that's kind of great. But there's going to be these little like future tweaks to the room. But Peach, man, Peach was a 1980s, early 90s thing that hasn't had its heyday before and has not ever had its heyday again since. But like, my God, this this peach and gold. (laughs) You see it a lot in, in a lot of outrun aesthetic stuff that you can find on the online peach definitely comes up a lot peach magenta that sort of thing actually in a completely pointless move for the sake of this podcast i I have led lights that i set up in my room and they're peach and purple you can't see that maybe i'll take a selfie and put on my face nobody wants to see you (laughs) i appreciate your themed lighting because then i don't really have to pay attention to you either because i can just see the, the lights on the screen so He's going to wake up, and he's in bed with a chick, or a chick's already out of bed. Yeah. She's a hooker, She's, uh... clearly. It's not stated, but it's clear. She knows Johnny's name, and that's about it. Yeah. She certainly doesn't know where he lives, because she's going to ask, and he doesn't either. So Johnny Mnemonic doesn't have the greatest memory right now, so we're setting that up. And then she's like, I got to go. And he's like, where are you going? And she's all, I got to get ice. And he looks to the ice bucket to the side, and there is ice in there. We have ice. So that's suspicious. Yeah. But it's not really, because she's never seen again. Yeah. (laughs) No, Johnny, that's what hookers do, okay? Sex workers rights, Johnny. Don't harass the sex workers when they've done their job. Yes, I'm, we're very much pro-sex work and the use of the term sex worker, but mm-hmm. hooker is just such a fun word, and it's the 1980s. Oh, fuck yeah. Embrace it. But the... Cyber hooker. I, I'm already, like, I'm feeling this tension build because I'm thinking this is going to open in the way that Total Recall does, where this chick is going to turn on him and start shooting a gun, <laughs> but she doesn't. She just disappears to go get some ice, and she's never seen again. Oh, God, now I'm picturing Schwarzenegger in this role. <laughs> but we have ice! Where are you going? This ice here! So Keanu Reeves is going to FaceTime call. He's going to program in a little number. And then whose face <laughs> pops up on the screen? Motherfucking Udo Kier. Out of nowhere, man. I was so excited. I forgot we are he big was fans movie. of Udo Kier here at Cinema of Cruelty. Some of our favorite old school crazy films are Fletcher Frankenstein, Blood for Dracula, both starring the fabulous Udo Kier. Just the most beautiful German voice Ever, I'd say. Next to Werner Herzog. Well, also just the most beautiful face. Oh my god, yeah. Young Udo Kier is an angel. And he still looks good, my god. I just god. don't know how to process his face. He's, he's like, you know, he's got old man lines. He does not hide his age, but he's still like, just, mwah, you, you Oh yeah, no, he, he aged really, really well, but he aged very differently than a young Udo Kier. Oh, I mean, for both sure. Both of them, sublime specimens yeah. of human, like physical humanity. It's not like Keanu Reeves, who just chose not to age. Uh, yeah, and, and that's another choice. So Udo Kier is going to be yeah, a good friend of like sort of Paul Morrissey and Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol yeah. be part of the factory scene back in the day and make mm. a lot of really great 
erotic films. Mm, damn right. About spleens. But we'll get into him another day. So the <laughs> number that Keanu Reeves is programming in here is a 201 area code. So Udo Kier, he lives apparently in northeast New Jersey. This is the phone area code for the Jersey City area. And later, we are going to fly into Newark, so that actually fits. I mean, Newark is a 973 area code, sometimes 862, but mostly 973. Try to stay calm, folks. Don't worry. It's okay. It's I'm okay. just saying, like, they got it right. Like, they, <laughs> <laughs> they really put in the right area code, which is kind of fun. Uh, yeah. This seems, the way he calls him seems so tedious, though, because he has the remote out and he has to, like, beep, beep. Beep, 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 on his remotes. Can't just say, call up the guy, you know. Oh, but to be fair, like, I have to do the exact same thing on my Apple TV remote. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it called that. It called the monotony of Apple TV remotes. (laughs) So another thing that this thing got weirdly sort of right. But now that we're done gushing on Udukir and area codes, we can explain Udukir (laughs) is Ralphie Face, who is Johnny's handler, the guy in charge of the stuff in Johnny's head. Because Johnny's got a lot of stuff in his head and he wants it out. Yeah, so we still don't know exactly, like, who Johnny is and, like, what his deal is, but we do get that he apparently has something implanted in his brain that he doesn't want in there anymore, and it's going to cost a ton of money to get this surgery, more than he thought, to get this surgery to take it back out. And we get these sentences that actually, in this back and forth, are kind of what I mentioned with Gibson's style of not actually giving us exposition, giving us kind of just information that seems a little bit more natural in this scene. So he's going to say things like, if I wanted the silicone dog out of my back brain, I could go to Mexico City. I want a full restoration. I want it all back. He's not going to tell us what it is Mm -hmm. in terms of like what he wants back. What this quote-unquote silicon is, we don't yeah. really know. He's not going to, like, officially and name that. But presumably, both of these people in this conversation know, right? So there would be no way to Mexico say that. Mexico City is the place to go to get that out. I could go to Mexico yeah. City means that, all right, we can infer that this is a global thing, right? Because he's calling a number in New Jersey. He seems to be some unknown place. And then apparently, they're also doing these surgeries in Mexico. So this is a globalized state of the world that... multiple people do these operations. So there's a lot of information packed in there, but not in an exposition way, and that's pretty cool. They got the Concords flying all over the place, so you get there really fast. Yeah, he's going to go to Beijing, because Udo Kier is going to give him one last job. He's like, all right, if you want to get whatever this mystery thing is in your mind dug out and get the money for it, take this one last job. And that job is going to be in Beijing. And to compare this to the short story, this is very similar to uh, the opening scene of that, where Johnny goes to a club to see Ralphie face-to-face. And I never really got the vibe that there was a ticking clock on he has to get the info out or that he wants his memories back or anything like that. I never really got that vibe from the character in the short story. It's more that... Ralphie keeps moving the tent poles or moving the goalposts on the amount of money that it will take to finish the job or something like that. I don't know. Basically, Ralphie's screwing over. You know, short story Ralphie is screwing over short story. Short, short story. Fuck it. Moving on. Keanu Reeves is going to get sent to Beijing. And once again, we get this interesting glimpse of the 2021 landscape because everybody is wearing masks. Yeah. Which granted, like this is a common thing in general for a lot of Beijing residents to wear masks even prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But 
it's still it's an interesting image, especially since we've been introduced with this idea of this viral plague of NAS, except for I'm like, wait, but NAS is an electronic attenuation syndrome, right? Like it's from the electromagnetic uh-huh. so why would... fields in the air. So like what are the masks? Yeah, they're doing all wearing the N ninety five masks that very sadly this year were in very short supply. But everyone's wearing them here. What's extra spooky in the Japanese version of this, there's some extra shots here where it shows the police beating the crap out of the protesters. Chinese police beating the crap out of its citizens who are protesting. Too real man. Too fucking real. Yes, we've got a lot of like just weird background stuff that's kind of like overlapping. And then we're going to get Keanu Reeves just walking over the center of the crowd without a mask like oh. the fucking American asshole that he is. Yeah. I mean, that's accurate, too. <laughs> the one asshole American who's like, I'm not wearing a mask. And he's going to walk into this Beijing hotel. And all of these bellhops are going to be lined up. And yeah. they're all just going to in sync kind of do a little bow with this mechanical <laughs> worse sound effect. And I'm like, okay, so are these what? also kind of cyborg like bellhops? And why mm-hmm. does this place need this many nanobot bellhops? I don't know, mm-hmm. but it's a fun, weird choice, and I like it. As I also like the choice that he's going to walk into this hotel past the nanotech bellhops, and there's going to be this amazing convex glass fish tank that he's going to look into and see this creepy little girl's face like reflected through it. And then he's going to come around to the fish tank and they're going to be just twins. These two little blonde twins that are just like standing there like they're in the fucking shining. And these twins are never going to be spoken of again. And And it's weird. He's a little weirded out by the twins like, whoa, twins, what the hell? The TV on the background, it's going to be giving us a little bit more information. We're going to get a bunch of stuff about this virus that's sweeping the globe. And then this news feed is going to get hijacked. And I'm not saying it was iced tea that hijacked <laughs> this thing, but it was iced tea. Yes, yeah, do the his- History Channel meme from the aliens guy. Like, I'm not saying it was iced tea. Exactly. But it was iced tea. Then we cut to Keanu Reeves getting into an elevator. In the elevator, and we have a lot of voiceover telling us that he is now doubling his capacity but he really shouldn't go over his capacity because that could be bad news. Yeah, he takes out this wire, yeah. right? And he just like plugs it into his skull. And it's a pretty cool special effect because mm. it's kind of like he just has an aux cable that he can plug into a little port in his cranium. And yeah, we get the warning, like, upgrade beginning from 80 gigabytes, capacity increased to 160 gigabytes, warning, do not exceed... And I'm like, all right, so we've got, like, Chekhov's brain slash wet drive capacity. <laughs> we're, we're setting this up. Yeah. Do not exceed. I'm like, I wonder if this is going to become a plot point. Uh, I bet he's going to exceed something. Yeah. I bet he is. Now, this movie keeps saying 160 gigs or even 320 gigs. That doesn't really seem like that much today. It's very easy to get a hard drive, a 320 gig hard drive from Best Buy. That might run you 40 bucks or something like that. The average computer in 1995 had maybe 400 megabytes of hard drive. That was typical for most computers. There were computers that had one gigabyte hard drives, and they could go for nearly $3,000. So in 95, saying 320 gigabytes, yeah, that's a pretty absurd amount. The other weird thing uh, about the idea that the human brain can't handle so much or he has to erase his memory to make room for this extra stuff It's kind of laughable because a lot of modern scientific studies have said that the human brain's 
capacity for memory, if we look at it in terms of bytes, is actually closer to 2.5 petabytes. And if you don't know what a petabyte is, you have gigabytes, you have terabytes, and then you have petabytes. A terabyte is a thousand gigabytes, a petabyte is a thousand terabytes. So he's taking up 320 gigabytes of memory with the information he's going to get, but he should have another 2.5 million gigs left over after that anyway, so he really should be fine. Well, maybe that's all going to his, his daily functions, his sight, his motor <laughs> skills. I don't know. But anyway, he is going to go up into his little elevator and knock on the door for the job. Oh, the job. And yeah. these two little adorable scientist <laughs> newbies are going to like open the door. Yeah. And they're two little scientists. We're going to find out later that these guys, they work for Pharmacon. And that we're just going to spoil this now. Whoa, spoilers for this movie oh from 1995. So there is actually a cure out there to, to NAS, to the, the viral plague, that Pharmacon, this evil pharmaceutical corporation, had discovered, but decided to keep under wraps because they wanted to make more money, like kind of keeping people sick. I hope that's not accurate to modern day. Good Lord. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that there are the conspiracy narratives yeah. that exist around the concept of big pharma in general. Sure, as yeah. An industry that mm -hmm. manufactures both drugs and illness simultaneously to yeah. try to like make more money. And so that's another kind of interesting 2021. Yeah, but that's, you know, that's, that's things, man. Yeah, so there are like pharmaceutical narratives. It's not necessarily that like, oh my God, this thing predicted the big pharma issues because big pharma is already going to start becoming a narrative in the 1970s. So this is actually just kind of picking up on anxieties that already were existent in the time in the 80s and 90s, but they mm. are going to become much more prevalent national concerns in mm. the millennium. So right. that is interesting that they did kind of pick up on that trend specifically. Um, so we're talking about this movie, Giant Mnemonic. Yeah. So, yeah, these two little scientists, they're <laughs> going to have this information on the cure to NAS, and they want to smuggle it somewhere through Johnny, because this is where we learn the thing that he has in his brain is a data hardware or hard drive, really, hard drive that allows thing. him to upload information, and he can then carry it, smuggle this information from one place to another in a safer way than just sending it across virtual space. Yeah, it's, it's too dangerous. Someone Why like... they can't just wirelessly hack into his brain is because it's 1995, and Wi-Fi, <laughs> not a thing yet, so it's fine. <laughs> it's safe inside his little mm -hmm. cranium his little mushy wetware cranium yep. and yep. Yep. they're gonna say like hey here's the deal man we have well first he's like what are you guys like total noobs and they're like well yeah <laughs> i was like oh you guys he are says that you don't look like the guys i normally the kind of people i normally work with but they're like well look man we d did all the right things we got you the money we got you your plane ticket you can do this right yeah, yeah. they're like we're paying you we got you first class tickets Jeez, like you gotta start somewhere right and he's like okay i guess so and they're like okay so it's 320 gigabytes and you're like, oh, shit, because we just saw that elevator scene. And that elevator scene said he had 160 gigabytes. And Chekhov's wetware told us, like, if you exceed this, like, that's bad news. We don't know what's going to happen, but, like, computerized digital voice made it sound like it was going to be bad. The scientists remind us of this when they say, are you sure you have enough? Because if you don't, 
synaptic seepage There's a sentence. can kill you in 48 hours and the data will be corrupted and unreadable. Yeah, and this data is super important, bro, yeah. so don't fuck us here. And he's like, nah, I'll be fine, though. That's fine. It's all good. And he begins preparing the hard drive, the reader, the disk reader, the wiring he'll need for that. And I mentioned this. It's all very minor, inconsequential stuff that he's doing here. But this was a moment when I was watching the Japanese version of the film that I, I noticed how drastically different the scores were. And this is another moment I wanted to play really quick to just, like, give you an idea Go of... Go for it. Yeah. So this is just Johnny putting things together, getting ready in the American version. Count to approaches zero. Click on three frames off the TV. Any three. They'll meld with the data and I won't know what they are. That's a download code. Okay, so just kind of like, oh, he's doing <laughs> things. It's kind of techy. Japanese version. When the counter approaches zero, click on three frames off the TV. Any three. They'll meld with the data and I won't know what they are. That's a download code. It's a totally different kind of scene when you do it like that. That Japanese music is saying like, this is some shit. We are getting down to some fucking business right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it is going to be <laughs> some business because... He's going to take out all of his, like, works, all of the stuff that he needs to make this happen. And it's going to be, like, a little VR headset, which is surprisingly accurate it's to what VR headsets for where look today. O- like, the Oculus headsets are now, it's, yeah, pretty close. Yeah, it looks pretty much exactly like that. He's going to have two different VR headsets throughout mm. this. This one's going to be, like, the all-black one yeah. that's a little bit more bulky and looks very similar to the Oculus headsets. Later, he's going to have a more streamlined version that's a little more streamlined than we have now, but still on the right track. Mm-hmm. But then he's going to take out this, like, mouth guard, this Invisalign mouth guard, and also weirdly accurate to 2021 because... In 1995, the mouth guards were not Invisalign clear mouth guards. Those, they were the big, thick, usually oh, in yeah. the colored wax kind. So mm-hmm. this is actually also kind of cool. It went by me the first time because I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm used to seeing those kind of things. But no, this actually you, you didn't see is those another in weird little tech thing. So yeah. And he's going to put it in his mouth and he's going to put the VR headset on it. And then he's just going to be like, hit me and crunch down on his mouth guard. The visual download starts, which is actually, once again, kind of fun three-dimensional mm-hmm. VR space. And it's an intense process. Yeah. Bro. It's intense. He, like, and Keanu's really selling it. He is grimacing. He's like, <laughs> because he's, I mean, he's taking on twice the amount of data that he can hold. So it's a bit much to deal with, I guess. And as we're going through cyberspace, they click off the three frames and they get all that info Right into his head. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah, he does. And it, the seepage starts automatically. <laughs> he loses his shit. As soon as he takes the headset off, he I really like the way that Keanu sells this because he's like blinking and he's like, where is the toilet? What? The bathroom. Where's bathroom? 
goes in. His head is already, like, flipping out on him. He's having flashes in his vision. And then some guys come in, they kill the noobs, and Johnny leaves. Yeah, the Yakuza's on his tail. Yeah. So, organized crime out of Japan, for those who, for some reason, don't know what the Yakuza is. For those of you who haven't seen Fast and the Furious 3 Tokyo Drift. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, like, a super important movie. Oh. Which I only say, like, somewhat sarcastically, because Fast and the Furious... It's amazing. We both kind of actually like that movie. (laughs) um, Yeah, the Yakuza is on the tail. They're going to come. They're going to, like, chop these poor little scientists up after Mm -hmm. they extract some information from them and destroy some of the mnemonic devices. Because the mnemonic devices, in order to recall this information later, are going to be three pictures randomly generated and selected from the TV that's on at the time. And in this process... Keanu Reeves is going to lose access to some of those pictures, so he has no way of retrieving the data. Mm -hmm. He's going to fly to Newark with all of this data on his head. We're going to have an interesting, well, not actually all that interesting, but another Japanese addition to the Japanese cut Mm -hmm. where we're going to have this character that we haven't really been fully introduced to yet, (laughs) but uh, he's going to be played by Takashi Kitano, who's a a big deal in Japan or was in the 90s. And because of this, because they had this sort of well-known Japanese actor, he's going to get a lot more screen time in the Japanese version. And he's going to become a lot more of a central character. And so we're going to get that first edition here where he's sitting in this child's room looking at a hologram of a child, also in a very similar shot, actually, that we're going to get 20 years later in Gamers when we're looking at a little hologram of a kid. So I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm seeing where Gamers got a lot of its shots, basically. <laughs> and he's, we're getting the sense that this kid definitely dead and he's kind of missing her. But the thing that's fascinating to me is the room, the production in this room. He's sitting on this bed and I have never seen so many stuffed animals in like one place. Like, like you think, just is so E.T. Many. hiding somewhere amongst all these stuffed animals? What the hell is going on? It's like this stuffed animal shrine mausoleum. And also like three of these like stuffed things are these giant crayons, like these giant stuffed crayons. <laughs> I don't know. It is a production choice and it is fascinating. So yeah, he apparently has a dead daughter who he now has in hologram form. Important, sort yeah. of. And then we're, yeah, we're flying to Newark. The free city of Newark, as the subtitles tell us. Yeah, what does that mean? I don't, uh, I don't, it, ugh. So he's going to get in this plane, go to Newark. It's going to be a Concorde flight, so it's going to get him there super quick. Because the thing is, is like the countdown to his brain seepage has started. Yeah. It's going to kill him in like 24 hours. So he doesn't have time for like a regular international flight. Nobody's got time for that. Th- this is true. Yes. And we meet in the American version. This is the first scene with Takashi. Or what's the character's name? Um, I feel like his name also it's, in the movie was like Takashi. Really I think the similar. actor's name is Takashi. but uh, Takahashi. All right. So we have super close. Yes, Takashi Katano playing Takahashi, and his minion comes in. He's mad at the minion because Johnny got away. You suck. I like that he mentions that he says, uh, "Yes, I I see you've turned your shame into an asset." And this guy has this weird thumb weapon on, and we saw him earlier. He seems to open it up, and he has this. In the short story, it's described as a mono filament which is just a super thin 
piece of wire that's super hot and cuts through whatever it touches. So it's kind of uh, badass. I was always trying to figure out like, what he meant by, I see you turned your shame into an asset. Yeah. I don't know at what point this was a shame, because it seems yeah. like a choice to get this body hack. Yeah. Well, in movies, I don't know. I seriously doubt this is a real thing in Japanese culture, but in movies about you know the Yakuza and all that, you always have those scenes where the underling comes in to see the boss, and the boss says, you've brought dishonor to the clan. For that, you have to pay the price. And they take out a dagger, and they very sternly cut off a finger or something like that. So you have to wonder if this character went through something like that, where he had to cut off his own thumb, and he's, later on he says, well, I lost a thumb, but I do live in a world where biohacking is a really big deal, so turn my shame into an asset. I will. AKA, like, upgrade it with this, like, really crazy cool laser. Although, you've turned your shame into an asset. It's just a great sentence. Big fan of that sentence in general. Yeah. And, yeah, we're going to set up this premise here that... Takashi Takahashi is, in some ways, the current CEO of Pharmacon, the big pharma company. I believe this he's, is, like, kind of deal. He's in charge and of Newark. He's also Yakuza, though, mm. so, like, he's kind of both. Yeah. <laughs> the know. Japanese version actually plays into that a little bit more, because in the American version, he just says, why didn't you contact me? Well, I'm sorry, sir, you had just lost your daughter. I didn't want to disturb you. The conversation goes on. But in the Japanese version, there's this extra line where he says, oh, I just... I had heard that your daughter just passed away. I didn't want to disturb you. And then Takahashi says, I am Yakuza. I am always available, even though that line is not present in the American version. So mm -hmm. eh, interesting thing, though, watching this scene twice over, this was when I realized I've actually seen this actor before a lot when I was in college in the most ridiculous way. I did not expect to remember him from in the 2000s, like 2003 to 2007, there was this really goofy show on Spike TV called Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, or MXC, and that was a redubbed Japanese TV show that was just meant to be really goofy. And at the end, it would say, all the footage from this is taken from the Japanese show Takeshi's Castle. And I looked it up, Takeshi Kitano is the guy from Takashi's Castle, so I was watching him on Most Extreme Elimination Challenge a whole lot back in the day, and I didn't even know it. Yeah, he's most well-known in Japan as a comedian and a TV show host, yeah, that so that makes sense. makes total sense. I just That was not a connection I was expecting to make yeah, that's between Gynamonic <laughs> and MXC. Everything's connected. It all comes back together. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's overall just sort of pissed that uh, Johnny Mnemonic is out there with this information that was stolen from Pharmacon in his head. Johnny Mnemonic is going to arrive in Newark, and he's going to go through a passport control that is so spot on, in some ways, global entry style that they mm -hmm. have now. So he's going to go to this little machine, and he just has to put his passport in it, and it's going to scan him. The thing that scans him is this green light that's a little bit sort of an x-ray and a CAT scan combined, sure. sort of sees his insides. And it detects the implant, but this is read by the machine, interestingly enough, as in a government-approved dyslexia unscrambler. So this, there's apparently, yeah, body hacks that are sanctioned by the government, and somehow mm -hmm. he's managed to trick the machine into thinking that this is one. And the machine helpfully informs him, seepage detected will kill 
or like will do something to you in 24 hours <laughs> like you have 24 hours to live and he just Kelsey, says thanks. okay yeah thanks yeah and this is weird a machine that sees your insides and can detect anything you have on your person it would be way more badass if every time you stepped into one of those full body scan systems at modern day airports that briefly you saw some of your skeleton as it was doing its thing but uh, that's just that's that would really be disturbing on <laughs> the radiation yeah. implications. It's a lot of radiation exposure for uh, frequent uh, travelers. Yes. Cut to a nightclub. A nightclub, the kind of nightclub that Udo Kier would hang out at. Yeah, this thing like cut to this nightclub, and I was like, of course Udo Kier would hang out in this kind of nightclub. Well, it's like, got an this, opera singer singing some Wagner, I think. It, she's got the, the the Viking horned helmet on, so I'm just assuming it's something from Wagner because that's what that always is. So to set the scene of this club, so this club, it is a very distinct aesthetic. It looks like some sort of adult prom committee planned a steampunk theme, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and then had seen the movie Fifth Element. And they're like, we should really get an opera singer up on stage but like have her sing in this very Eve bot kind of way because she's going to have no expression and no movement yeah. she's going to have this really beautiful voice and then let's just fill the entire room with like extras from the city of lost children and some madonna music videos like it's an interesting blend we've got like a guy in goggles we've got chicks in chain mail we have people with like pvc elbow and knee pads every single costume in this club is working i encourage mm -hmm. you to just pay attention to all of the extras in this scene sure. because these are one of like the moments where the movie shines there are also, I noticed on one of the viewings, underneath this very stoic opera singer that's just like glitzed out, are all of these bodies that seem to be under some sort of stretchy black lycra material forming a sea, and they're all moving around under this giant lycra tarp. It's choices were made, no great choices. <laughs> that's all I have to say. And in the middle of this, Udo Kier is sitting at his table, and... He has my two favorite characters in this entire movie, <laughs> the bodyguards. It's the robo-bitches, man. He's got the robo-bitches going, and they are awesome. These two bodyguards are going to be made up in a very austere 1980s aesthetic way with very like kind of heavy, sharp makeup, and in these very shiny tight tube dresses mm -hmm. one of them is going to have the pvc elbow and knee pads on and whatnot <laughs> it's something out of like just this really great vogue drag performance almost like it's just very high art but like in a 1980s way and these two in the short story are the magnetic dog sisters <laughs> what they're referred to as the quote attributed yeah, to them were yeah. the magnetic dog sisters were on the door that night and I didn't relish trying to get past them if things didn't work out. They were two meters tall and thin as greyhounds. One was black and the other white, but aside from that, they were as nearly identical as cosmetic surgery could make them. They'd been lovers for years and were bad news in a tussle. And so, like, we get this really great picture mm -hmm. of these two austere, very feminine, but in, like, an alien 80s, like, Patrick Nagel kind of, yeah. like, feminine way. Super beautiful. And I really love this, like wave of female bodyguards mm -hmm. that this like entire landscape seems to have 
And the third person is going to show up. And she, too, is like this weird kick-ass bodyguard Barbie, like 80s Patrick Nagel bodyguard Barbie. Yeah. And she... It's not Molly. It's not Molly, yeah. So she wants to be a bodyguard for Udo Kier. She comes up to him and she's like, hey. who wouldn't want to work with Udo Kier? Yeah. Well, she she feels like she's better than these two magnetic dog sisters. She's been, her speed has been accelerated thanks to implants by her buddy Spider, played by Henry Rollins. And God damn it, I just love it when Henry Rollins shows up in movies so randomly and he's like, playing some sort of nerdy scientist in this movie, which you think, oh, Henry Rollins is a nerdy scientist guy. Yeah, let's see how that works. Black rim glasses yeah. from the 1960s yeah. that would actually become quite popular in the it, millennium again. Yeah, <laughs> so. and I say Henry Rollins is a nerd sarcastically, but he actually, I love Henry Rollins in this movie. I really like what he does. See, I don't have strong feelings about Henry Rollins, but oh. I can appreciate your oh. love. For, I don't have anything against Henry Rollins. Oh, it's okay. just. Well, He's no Billy Zane, but who is? <laughs> who mean, is? Billy Zane is almost not even enough Billy Zane sometimes, so what are you going to do? However, yes, Jane, this character is called Jane, wants to work with Udo Kirby, his bodyguard, and she proves how badass she is by, you know, grabbing one of his bodyguards, slamming her face on the table, like, I'm faster than these two, you gotta use me. Okay then, here, Jane, hold out your hand. And she holds out her hand. Yes, good. What should I do now? Just hold your hands there. Hold out. Her hand starts to shake. Your, yes. It convulses. Because she's got the shakes. She's got the black shakes. She's got the NAS, man. Too yeah. many too many implants. She's got that shitty street technology like shoved into her body, and they make fun of her for it. Like, what'd you do? Get that on the street, you know, from your little Spider-Man boyfriend? Yeah. And this bodyguard, yeah, in the short story, her name is going to be Molly Millions, which is a much... More memorable name yeah. than Jane. But <laughs> at the time, so Molly Millions is actually in William Gibson's oeuvre. It's yeah. going to go on to have her own trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a in sprawl a, lot of, trilogy. a lot of the books, yeah. The rights to that had been bought by a different production company. So Johnny Mnemonic at the time did not have the rights to the name Molly Millions and had yeah. to change the name. Which so is... For some reason, they picked Jane. That is just the worst kind of Hollywood bullshit to me. Uh, we have this name. Uh, can we use this name? No, no. We're going to use this name in a movie we might make. Well, are you going to make the movie? Well, we no. might. But One are day. you? They might Probably still. Not. Who knows? No. So but, can we lose yeah, it? Yeah, it's no. kind of like the whole X-Men bullshit that happened a little oh, while God. back. Or... Yeah. <laughs> and just Jane looks different than Molly is described. In the short story, she's described as having you know jet black hair. She has like razors coming out of her fingernails. And her eyes are silver or have just are, meta- are like mirrors, so to speak. And she wears like mirrored yeah, sunglasses a, cool a lot and her eyes are mirrored as well. So she's got a lot of enhancements and she's really fast. And in the short story, she proves her worth to Johnny by cutting another bodyguard's wrist tendons off in one like quick motion. So it's not too unlike how we're introduced to her here where she beats up one of the other bodyguards. There's nothing in the short story about NES or the Black Shake. So that's not something that... Molly Millions is affected by just Jane in this story that has this whole extra. Yeah, so that's another really thing. interesting difference between the short story and the movie. No NAS, no disease or viral plague of any kind, yeah. which is curious since that's the central focus of this narrative. Gotta stretch those 20 pages out somehow. <laughs> so suddenly in this movie, yeah, officially, yeah. is gonna be 
iced tea. He's here. He's here. And his look. So it's going to be kind of, once again, a very tropish, like dystopic, low tech look or whatever, where his clothes are a little like dirty and kind of camouflaged or whatever. And he's going to have inexplicably these tattoos all over his face, (laughs) kind of like an anarchist star symbol or something. And a lot of the low tech society are going to have these tattoos all over their body, which I don't know why. And he's going to have this ponytail of dreads that's coming up over goggles. It's a look and it's working for him is all I have to say. Like, he also just looks so young. It's so adorable. Oh, God. Like, he is really attractive it's, in this. Yeah. And because he, he's an attractive man in general. But he's totally. just he's such a wee baby iced tea in this. <laughs> he's just a little kitty glass of iced tea. And he's watching Johnny come into this very derelict area, confused because people who look like Johnny typically don't come to that neighborhood. Johnny walks into this building and thinks that he's met his contacts, but it's just the same people from the hotel from earlier that want to cut his head off so he tries to run off and there's like a little bit of a fight scene action and watch this I just thought good lord Keanu Reeves has come so far in terms of the action scenes that he is involved with because when he's fighting his guys off it's like just punch punch kind of a kick that goes about waist high not the Keanu that we would come to know in the Matrix and John Wick so it's really weird to watch it for that He runs out and he's pursued, but Ice-T happens to kill off the guy who's pursuing him and introduces himself. He says, hi, I'm J-Bone. I run heaven. What's heaven? Then he just points, like, over there. That's heaven. Over there. Points to an old bridge. Kind of looks like uh, the dilapidated Brooklyn Bridge or something like that. Obviously not, because... This is yeah, there's so. this like society that kind of floats in the sky. Yeah. I don't know. But the important part is that Ice-T, his first real introductory lines are, I'm J-Bone. I run heaven. <laughs> yeah. You know in that moment when he pulls off that line that you're like, okay, Ice-T, whatever you say, like throughout the rest of this movie, I'm pretty sure you're going to pull it off because <sighs> it's just so bizarre. I'm J-Bone. I run heaven. Yeah. I'm like, of course you do. And of course you do. You're ice too. As Johnny turns to look at heaven, <laughs> this thing underneath the bridge, he looks back and, I, and J-Bone, he's just gone. Because that's how J-Bone does things. He just vanishes. And then at some point, Johnny gets knocked out and wakes up again to Udo Kier and the thumb guy. Have him strapped down on a table. And they're about ready to cut up his head. And at this point... I normally don't nitpick on plot details like this in the movie, but as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, okay, this is the scene where they're telling us, we want to take your head, Johnny. We're going to cut off your head. He offers to just give them the information. You have the download code info. I can just give you the data and everyone's happy. Nah, nah, I'd rather just cut off your head. Okay, great. Why didn't you just cut off his head then? Why did you wait for him to wake up? Ugh. Yeah, that is curious. Yeah, yeah. that's just... It's a bad movie, London. It's a bad movie. I'm sorry, but this is a bad movie. Once again, I mean, we watch plenty of bad movies that are still great yeah. in terms of like they're delivering on entertainment. So them having this plot hole doesn't necessarily make it unwatchable. But yeah, no. so it, it does. Yeah, that is curious because reasons, you know, like you got to carry it along. And Jane shows up. Jane shows up. She's going to be negotiated to become his bodyguard. Yeah. They escape. The filament thumb guy slices Udo Kier up for no fucking reason. It's like a very Itchy the Killer style (laughs) scene. Once again, before Itchy the Killer, where 
it's just, yeah, this red little light is going to go like slice, slice, slice. And then he's just going to slide into pieces. Now Jane and Johnny are running outside. Jane goes to the garbage. And again, I normally don't nitpick stuff like this, but Keanu Reeves gives the worst goddamn line reading of his career. We're the best one, if it's the same one that I'm thinking of. It's not. It's a different one. Okay. She's rummaging through the garbage looking for her gear. He turns to her and says this. What are you doing? Just the way he says that is so absurd to me. He looks at her and just goes, what are you doing? Like, what? Did they only have one take of that? Was that the best take they had? It's such a strange way to say it, and it's unlike anything else that he does in the movie. But then there's going to be a line in which he's almost like channeling a little bit of mini cage action, where he's like, buddy, I didn't know you had it in <laughs> yeah. you. Because he's going to share with Jane the fact that this is where we learn full and formally that in order to become this runner, he's had to scoop out his memories to like make room for this gigabyte high drive. We're not going to look too closely at the science there. Like, this is just what happened. Yeah, just and is. we're going to get her asking, like, oh, wait, so you don't remember your childhood? Like, do, do you have parents and stuff? And then he's just going to turn and yell back at her, like, full force. Like, you got parents and stuff? And you're like, whoa. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, yes. Like, wherever that energy just came from. And then he's going to do it again in a wee bit because they're going to go break into some sort of storage locker or whatever belonging to some company and that has just a bunch of VR stuff like mm-hmm. in its supply cabinet and he's just gonna yell I need a computer <laughs> like yeah you do buddy <laughs> you do so like his performance throughout this is either just gonna be that just totally stoic Keanu Reeves that like we come to know with these just bursts of adrenalized intensity and <laughs> It's a weird choice, but it's one of the things that are, it's the moments where this actually becomes like watchable again because it just like sparks something yeah. for a second. I reckon them for that one line. The rest of it, it's all good fun. Don't don't worry. Just that one line. I'm like, what is this? He's going to have some just great line deliveries. And earlier when he meets up with his like fake contact and they're like, oh, yeah, come in. Everything's safe or whatever. And then they pull a gun on him. He's going to deliver this. You lied. Yeah, lied. it's a really just, good like, line. An reading. amazing line read. These you little lied. short moments where you're like, mm-hmm. that's exactly how you needed to do that, Keanu. So yeah, for the most part, the lines that he's given are just bizarre and they're fun <laughs> and he delivers them in fun ways. Now, this is going to include also, they're going to break into this closet. One of them does it like really, really fast or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I used to have a summer job breaking and entering. And you're like, all right, that's a pastime. It's really obviously a dubbed line. You could because their mouths don't move at all. Like, okay, dub that line so we can explain how we yeah, can break into things. Yeah, really needed that. But sure. I just like that idea. You just spend a summer, you know, breaking in <laughs> and stuff. How does he know? Yeah, His how, memories how are gone. You know? I don't, I don't know. Maybe he's just being a wise ass. <laughs> it's a bad movie, London. This is a bad Once again, this movie. This is not the first movie that we have watched that has plot holes. <laughs> I'm not really sure why. Like, these are the plot holes you're dwelling on. I don't know why these bug me so much. I mean, granted, like, there's not a single plot hole in Troll 2. Like, that shit's just perfection <laughs> and tight. But, you know, some movies do have plot holes. Now, 
they're gonna like gather all of the VR technology that they need. And once again, like we get a pretty close, interesting look at mm. what VR in the future is gonna be. It's gonna be the little eye screen, and he's also gonna have these little gloves that yeah. we do also have VR gloves. What so I love fun. is that when he's calling out all the stuff to get, I had to rewind it to make sure I heard him right. He says, "Give me a Thompson iPhone." Which sounded hilarious, but when he says iPhone, you realize, oh, you mean like for the eyes, a phone yeah. for the eyes is what's going on here. And yeah, it's the silver headset that does <laughs> look a lot like modern Oculus headsets today, which is badass. Yeah. So like once again, like the tech is here. We're using the term iPhone. That is cool, even though they mean it differently. Yeah. This movie's not so bad. Yeah. The VR tech here, especially since they're going to go into a little like VR sequence where he's going to sit down with his little VR tech <laughs> and he's going to try to hack the system oh, good through the three dimensional space of virtual reality. Oh, yeah. Mid 90s CGI. Here we go. This is good. <laughs> and the thing is, is that the visual of this VR space. So we're going to go into VR space and there's going to be graphics and things and we're going to get his two hands that are like in the gloves but yeah. in more of a gloved pattern mm -hmm. in the frame yeah. that he's sort of picking things up with and you see his disembodied hands move around right and the fascinating thing about this is have you played a lot of the modern vr games i have not haven't had a chance to do that okay so i have and some of the games look surprisingly similar to this, mm. especially with those hands being in the frame. In most of the VR games I've played, those hands are there. You see your hands. And that actually does really help root you in the VR space yeah. because you see your hands exactly where your hands would be in front of your face. So it really helps sell this kind of yeah, new landscape and your body sort of being there. So his hands are going to be moving in exactly modern VR game ways. And he's going to be picking up and interacting with the images in modern VR game ways. And so I was thinking like, okay, I was trying to remember what the fuck was the VR landscape even looking like in 1995? Uh, not good. So yeah, there, there's some things leading up to that. VR has like its own interesting history that yeah. we won't like break down fully here. But the first real semblance of a VR thing actually came in 1957. And these are also things that we will put on the instant Twitter because I found some pictures of mm -hmm. them. The, there was a cinematographer, actually. So fuck yeah, cinematography, Morton <laughs> Helig. And he invented something called the Sensorama. And it was this theater cabinet device that offered viewers an interactive experience where you'd kind of like, it almost looked like an 80s arcade game, but carved out where you'd sort of sit inside it. Mm. And then the first headset is really going to come in 1961. But that was a very huge, big diving helmet looking thing. And that was just to allow you to virtually see an environment that you weren't physically there for. Also, two fun trivia facts that I found about VR is one, that the first science fiction story to mention a virtual reality device was in 1935. And that just seemed like a lot earlier than I expected. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so there's an author, Stanley Weinbaum, who wrote a short story called Pygmalion Spectacles. And in this story, this it main about character Eliza meets, Doolittle's glasses, yeah. Yeah, it's like... yeah, this professor who invents these goggles that are VR goggles. They allow him to experience like sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch oh. that isn't otherwise there. And so that's like our first VR science fiction reference. Like, I think we I all like, know yeah, what he was using boom. those for. Um, 
Although virtual reality as a term is not mm -hmm. going to be officially coined until 1987. John Lanier, oh. a computer scientist, researcher, and artist, coined the term virtual reality in 1987. So 1995, the time of this movie, like, yeah. <laughs> VR stuff, not a big commercial thing. Arcade games had started to appear in like the larger arcades in like 1991. Yeah. And then in 1995, what happened uh, in 1995? Okay. Benji? Well, I can actually offer some personal history with the arcade games. A lot of the things that you would see in malls back then in the mid 90s and when this movie came out were these really shitty VR games where you would have to pay five dollars in 95 money to have a gigantic plastic headset put on top of you that was front loaded with very small monitors that were never in focus and it kind of responded to the movement of your head and you could kind of move around in the environment by like pushing up against this ring that would be put around you again referring back to the community VR episode that is actually very accurate to what VR was like what those setups were like back in the day. I think the size of the headset is a little exaggerated that they have Worlds on the Dean. Bon World. <laughs> but um yeah, pretty accurate. And those games, they were just shitty and terrible and blocky textures and polygons everywhere. No one knew how to play the th the damn things, but you wanted to try it out because it's VR. But the true scourge of VR from 1995 was the goddamn Virtual Boy. <laughs> yes. Oh. Talk to me about Virtual Boy. From Nintendo. Fuck this thing. Uh, for like a good reference video, the, the YouTuber, the Angry Video Game Nerd, has a whole episode about them where he reviews every single Virtual Boy game because there were only 10 games or something like that that came <laughs> out. And it was a you know virtual reality thing. You couldn't even put it on, like wear it on your head. The damn thing was a red pieced up plastic with the two little monitor holes where your eyes would go and you had to just put on a stand so you couldn't wear it on your head there was no head strap for it you had to have it on a stand on a table and like lean into it with your eyes and play the thing and i didn't own one of these things but i distinctly remember seeing this multiple times at a toys r us and trying to play it and i swear to god you got a headache from 30 fucking seconds of playing this game because you were looking in on this weird black and red screen or the screens I should say and I could never like get my eyes to focus the right way on them and as far as I know there's nothing about my vision that makes 3D a bad thing but Virtual Boy back in the day, those things were horrible to play on. And it was a huge failure. The guy who made that was the same guy that made the Game Boy. Like, so he was a legend. I forget his name offhand, <laughs> but he was a legend at Nintendo. And after the Virtual Boy came out, he, like, retired. He just said, uh, no, I don't have it anymore. I'm done. So the Virtual Boy is always looked back on as this example of how shit virtual reality was at the time and also how it was seemingly being forced down our throats as the next big thing even though it wasn't 
The technology was years away from being like what it is today. And it's not as if like we're being taken over by Oculus headsets now. It's still way more convenient to just look at your phone or look at the TV, the thing you can pick up and put down really quickly. A headset that you have to put on your head, take off every now and then, that's inconvenient with the lightweight headsets that we have now. And it was a complete workout to do it with those gigantic plastic monstrosities they were putting on our heads in arcades back in the mid-90s. So the motion sickness in the modern age, that doesn't go away. I still yeah. get really motion sick okay, playing yeah. VR games. But the first time I played a VR game, like yeah. I have to admit, it was really fucking cool. I was really excited because there was something about this idea. Like, it felt very much like the Dean and community where I was like, oh my God, Jesus <laughs> wept. Stop saying like, Jesus wept. Worlds upon worlds, I'm a living God. <laughs> and they're like, I can see things in three dimensions. I'm like, or I could take this off and see things in three dimensions. But no, like, <laughs> the thing in front of me is in three dimensions. It's just, there's something very cool and weird about it. Uh. And yeah, no, it's a very cool experience. It's a, it's a mind fuck, but... And it's fascinating to me that the aesthetic that they do here comes so close to what that actually sort of physically looks like. I mean, the mm -hmm. graphics are all going to be variable depending on what game you're playing. So it's not like all of them look like these bright primary color triangles or whatever. But the dimensional space that they're working with here is very, very reminiscent and the sharpness. What he's using it for, however, is where we get into some crazy fun because he's using it to try to hack into, you know, like government secret files or not even government secret files, Pharmacon secret files. <laughs> so he's going through the back door by, you know, running through this virtual space and scaling walls and trying to do like Rubik cube stuff <laughs> to like <laughs> unlock the yeah, drawer. There's a pyramid looking thing that he's trying to move the stones around on and somehow that gives him access because at first he just hears access denied oh damn it all move some stuff around access granted like oh yeah okay because he did the he this is hacking he hacked this is it. how you hack things you know is you have to like deconstruct the pyramid rubik's cube and so he's gonna get this file out and it's gonna be a doctor just the name like dr all call or something all come yeah dr all come and he's like all right there's no other information here so vr space has failed me but we've got this sick graphic sequence in the film, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And we get a VR facepalm, which is kind of fun. Like Keanu Reeves is just gonna like facepalm, but he still has his VR equipment on, and it's a it's a fun choice. And this other hacker is gonna chase him out of VR space and like put a tracker on him or something. I don't or know. Or something. He he finds out that the facts that the newbies from earlier were trying to send it to, yeah, a coffee shop to Dr. Alcum. The plot details they come in in strange times in this movie. It's a little tricky to follow, like, what exactly yeah, is going on. Yeah, the plot is very weirdly convoluted in certain ways. In some ways, it's so streamlined, because it's just, like, Keanu Reeves trying to get this yeah. information out of his head so he can live. But the minor stuff like, of who what's was happening he supposed is to very go convoluted. To? Who were they actually sending that information to? It's, like, yeah. It's a bad movie, London. I'm sorry. It's a bad movie. I don't like saying that, but it's, it's a bad movie. It's mostly just like a mediocre <laughs> execution. I, like, yeah, there's way worse movies out there. You way know, worse movies that, out there. To me, I think that's like why this feels like such a bad movie to me is because its mediocrity really slaps you in the face. But it has like such cool, like, 
points of dressing on it that oh, I no. yeah I want it to be better. So that's maybe yeah. just the contrast of disappointment of its potential. Yeah. I mean, I do think that this is still better than a dangerous method. So whatever. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, why not? Yeah. But I mean, like this movie's still more enjoyable than a dangerous method. I'll give you that. Not a high bar to hit, but <laughs> you're you're not wrong. <laughs> so we've got a bunch of information that we're going to gain at some point because yeah, like the plot is really gonna collapse here at some point. There's been this AI that's been stalking like oh, everybody yeah. in this film. Weird by the ethereal white-faced woman who's like Takahashi, you must do the right thing. She's spooky. She shows up a lot. You need a new reason to live now that your daughter's mm. dead. How about curing the world of Ness? And yeah, she doesn't hear the cure the world part because no. like he keeps cutting this bitch off like before she can get like her full sentence out. <laughs> and then she's gonna try to start haunting Keanu Reeves through technology. And she's like, Johnny, like there's there's important stuff in you. And he's like, Don't got the time, bitch. Yeah. So it's kind of fun that there's just this random like ghost in the machine that keeps trying to communicate with people, and they're like, Nah. Yeah. Not in the short <laughs> no story. Time. I mean, lots of things in this movie are not in the short story, but especially not this whole cure NES thing, as we mentioned before, and not this ghost in the machine woman. So Johnny, though, you can't hold Johnny down, right? Because anonymous hackers online are after him and are unsuccessful. The Yakuza, they, they can't get to him. Pharmacon, they can't get to him. This mysterious ghost woman, she can't get to him. So they're like, okay, we're going to need more reinforcements. Because oh. Keanu Reeves is just untouchable. So, And we're going to call in. The Street Preacher, played by Dolph Not Even Trine Lundgren. Yeah, so there's this preacher who is a cyborg preacher that for some reason gets called in to also hunt down Johnny Mnemonic. So he's going to be on that case. <sighs> it's a bad movie! And Jane is starting to experience the the, nas, the, the black shakes. The black shakes. And she's convulsing. So... She's like, okay, you need to take me to Spider. My buddy Spider, he can fix us both up. So he's going to take them both to this cybernetic underground hospital. And Spider, yeah, he's going to fix Jane up. Like, Jane's fine. And he's going to find out the secret that is in Johnny's head, that Johnny does, in fact, have the cure to Nas. Now, remember, like, up until this point, like, we don't know that as right. an audience. Like, we've spoiled that already, oh, but this is the reveal that mm. he has the cure. And Spider's like, okay, here's the deal. You have the cure to save the planet. <laughs> you should probably, you know, let us extract this Take one so for the we team. can do that. Yeah, he's he tells him. he's like, him, I want to live, though. He's like, but you're dying anyway. Yeah, he says, <laughs> so, I can get out of your head you'll lose some fine motor skills and you probably won't be able to remember anything for longer than three minutes. And when he's doing this, when he's giving Johnny this information, I should mention the camera work in the scene where Henry Rollins as Spider is examining Johnny is doing some weird shit. The camera does this 360 kind of movement around the hospital bed. And then as he is saying, I can get it out. Oh, well, kill me, right? On each line, the camera is zooming in on their faces. Not zooming in. I mean, the physics, not with a zoom lens. The camera is physically pushing in on their faces really fast in ways we haven't seen otherwise. And the camera work stuck out to me a lot. And I found this interview clip of Henry Rollins talking about the making of this movie, and something he says here really resonated with me. Uh, here, here, we, here we go. Okay. Uh, I think it's safe to say that old Robert, who I am a huge fan of, 
Robert had a few tech people on that film um, bawling their hands up and going, mm, you can't shoot it like that, Robert. Well, I want to shoot it like that. Okay, we're doing it this way. And everyone's like, ugh, because he's an artist first, you know? So he had a few people like, okay. It was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> it was a sum up right there. I do kind of get this, like, Robert Longo, like, he's an artist first, wanted to do crazy, weird things with the camera. This is him wanting to do the weird art film, right? Mm-hmm. But then being given a studio budget and studio mandates yeah. to make this a blockbuster seller. And so I'm, I am wondering if this would have been better if they were able to just do their crazy art film or if it still would have been lacking like i am interested to see i think it would have been a lot better i think he would have been able to do a lot of crazy stuff it would have been its own thing just an art piece that comes at you and just says i'm art take me as i am this is a movie where because he was being given millions of dollars by a studio the studio had a lot of control over what he could do and if you're putting up millions of dollars to make a movie, you expect to get that money back. So you get this washed down vision. And when you have a washed down vision, you have mediocrity slapping you in the face. And that's the movie that we got. It's a bad movie, London. It's not a good this movie. crazy camera angle mash and stuff like if left completely unhinged i'm wondering if we would have had something that felt a little bit more like 12 monkeys like terry gilliam kind of like weirdness in terms of just really fast camera movements and the pan in and you're like what the you mentioned uh tetsuo the iron man Uh, if you you can find that online and that's a movie with all sorts of crazy camera moves that's happening a lot like the entire movie is crazy camera moves it's the black and white one we talked about earlier tetsuo yeah like this is a full tangent we're on at this point but if robert longo had been able to make something like that, like the Alphaville vision that he had earlier combined with Tetsuo the Iron Man, I would love to see that movie. That would be a fascinating film. It's not a movie that would have debuted in theaters. It would not have had any big stars in it like Keanu Reeves, but it would be a fascinating film to behold. And yeah, I would have loved, I wish he had gotten that million dollars to just make his crazy art movie, but no. No, he he got. Although to be fair, with the exception of effects people and some really diehard genre individuals, Tetsuo is also a challenge to sit through yes. in its own right. <laughs> and it's a short film, but my goodness. <laughs> now, so yeah, where were we? Okay, yeah. So Spider is like, okay, I can get this out, but you're probably going to be a vegetable more or less. Yeah. You're kind of going to be a vegetable. And he's, and I'm like, wait a softball your pitch (laughs) in there like that, buddy. Like just tell him he'd be fine, you know, and do it. But no, he he decides to give him this gloomy news and Keanu thinking about Keanu is like, nah, I'm going to find another way. Nah, not doing that. So pass. And this is when the preacher shows up. So nobody has time to extract anything anyway, because Dolph Lundgren's just going to rain hell fire, cybernetic hellfire down on this yeah. underground dungeon hospital. The uh, spider jumps on the preacher to help them escape. And Henry Rollins has said that the last thing he shot was his fight scene with Dolph Lundgren and Dolph did not hold back his punches. Henry Rollins said something like, I felt myself get hit in the head and suddenly my IQ had dropped 20 points when he hit me. And Dolph just says, ah, you're tough. You can take it. <laughs> Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> it is important, though, that Dolph Lundgren does get to carry around this, like, little bo <laughs> yeah. king. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, the and shepherd's cane. It's a little Bo Peep thing. <laughs> it's so stupid. He's going to go, like, torture a whole bunch of people again because, like, Johnny Mnemonic and Jane, they get away. Because, once again, like, Big Pharma can't keep him down. Yeah. Ghost in the Machine, weird AIs can't keep him down. The Yakuza can't keep him down. And now demonic cybernetic street creatures can't keep a Johnny mm-hmm. Mnemonic down. And so... Dolph Lundgren's going to go and he's going to torture people from information. There are some cool effects moments here. He's going to break some dude's prosthetic arm. And it's a very cool wetware versus hardware mashup Mm -hmm. where you can. So like this kind of looks like a winter soldier arm, right? Like it's put in frozen nitrate or frozen in nitrate Mm -hmm. and then just gets broken. But you can still see the muscular tissue in with the wires after this thing breaks. And so it's a very cool cybernetic mash of the wet and the hard. And that's all I have to say about that, because eventually Johnny Mnemonic, he's going to hook back up with Ice-T because Ice-T, not in this movie enough, but he's going to be in it again. Ice-T is going to take him to heaven because that's what Ice-T does, you know? And he's going to raise him up to this weird floating suspended mash of stuff that's like hovering above the city. He's like, all right, I can help you because you're saying you're carrying the cure for Nas. We might have a way to help you. And how we're going to help you is obviously... We got a guy. Yeah, I mean, Occam's razor would dictate in this predicament. What is the most right? obvious thing? The most obvious conclusion that's... to, like, how do you extract yeah. hard drives from somebody's wetware brain tissue is that you are going to use a cybernetically enhanced ex-Navy bottlenose heroin-addicted... A soldier? A... Dolphin. Oh, a dolphin. Oh, a do- uh. Okay. To do it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is Occam's Razor. I (laughs) did not expect that movie. Well, you should, because Occam's Razor, Benji. Like, what else could it be? Uh, You know, the... That whole, whole movie situation. is basically been telegraphing that we're gonna we're gonna get to that. And Jones is one of the few characters in the movie that is in the short story. Though the short story paints him a little bit differently. He is a dolphin that was in the navy, has a bunch of cybernetic enhancements in his head. However, he has a weird quirk that the movie, the American version of the movie, does not touch on at all, and the Japanese version only hints at. And that is that this dolphin is a heroin addict. Yeah. This I, okay. This dolphin's a junkie, you know. Like, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Yeah. What are you gonna do? And so to set this scene, so we arrive oh, in please. heaven, and there is this giant tower of TV monitors, <laughs> and it's kind of gorgeous. Like, out of all of the things that are bad in this movie, mm-hmm. like the production design, like the production team that's like just setting up the space with stuff is yeah. not one of them. So they have the tower of TVs. And then this giant tank to the side with greenish, lime greenish water floating in it. And then when we sweep around the characters that are standing in front of it, we see that there is a robot dolphin. It's supposed to be a cyborg dolphin, but it mostly just looks like a robot dolphin, like a robot dolphin attack situation. I'm sure there was never an actual dolphin on set for this. That was some sort of animatronic they had in the water or something. Yeah, it's an animatronic dolphin in... The water submerged in this tank. It does not have really any room to swim or do anything. It's just hooked up to these wires and it's just flapping in its tank. This is actually why the dolphin is addicted to heroin is because the heroin injections make it feel 
like it's still swimming. Now, keep in mind, the American version, we don't see it get injected with anything. It's never implied he has any kind of drug problem. In the Japanese version, Ice-T gets up there, he climbs up into the tank and has some sort of needle gun-looking thing with some blue liquid in it and says, yeah, he's a junkie too. I gotta inject him with this stuff to make him think he's still swimming. So he doesn't say heroin, he just says he's a junkie. We're not told in the Japanese version what he's a junkie for, but it's heroin. I'm not saying it's heroin. But it's heroin. But it's heroin. Although the short story tells us it's heroin. The short story is very explicit. It shows Molly taking a bag out and dumping some in the water and the dolphin like comes up like and like is lapping it all up and getting off on it. It's uh Yeah. Yeah. Because this dolphin. So this dolphin within the realm of the short story and the movie was once a code cracking Navy dolphin. So Mm -hmm. he worked for the Navy and that's where he developed his addiction to heroin, of course. And then he'd retired in the short story. It's not really explicitly stated how in the world he got to the low tech people in the movie like why these people just have the cybernetic dolphin like no explanation as far as i know because mm-hmm. he's like at a carnival or something in the short story like just hanging out it's weird. and willing to work for drugs yeah. so without this like drug hook there's absolutely no reason in the american version at all that they should just randomly have come across this code cracking ex-naval dolphin <laughs> that they now have <laughs> floating in the sky city in this giant tank where he doesn't get to go anywhere it just seems very cruel it's a bad even movie, more so London. than it already is and william gibson's comment on this is that he blames you know the american edited cut Mm -hmm. is that quote unquote basically what happened was it was taken away aka the film and recut by the american distributor in the last month of its pre-release life and it went from being a very funny very alternative piece of work to being something that had been very unsuccessfully chopped and cut into something more mainstream it was an interview he gave in 1998 okay yeah and he was specifically responding to the dolphin in this quote where he's like, yeah, like they took out the heroin addicted dolphin. That was super important to be the cutting edge of comedy. And yet why this is actually kind of interesting. This is like a crazy deep dive. I started going down because I was only peripherally aware of this until like really starting to research it for this movie. So there is indeed a precedent for where this came from because like when you're watching this movie you're like okay this movie just went crazy off the rails because there's this cyborg dolphin that like worked for the navy like cracking codes like (laughs) this shit is just insane drug-infused fever dream right which it is what is this like we're doing some sea quests now what the hell man (laughs) the whole thing is is that there actually is this thing called the u.s navy marine mammal program the nmmp just rolls off the tongue. It does, yes. And this is a branch of the U.S. Navy which studies the military use of marine mammals, principally bottlenose dolphins and California sea lions, and trains them to perform tasks for the military. Now, here's a little story. So once upon a time, also known as the 1960s, Uh the Navy began studying dolphin physiology to see if they could improve torpedo performances based off of what they learned about how the dolphin anatomy sort of functioned. In 1962, they started to set up this program at Point Mugu in California, where they built a research facility. And the intention of this research facility was really to see like, okay, can we use these dolphins in a military capacity? 
1965, there's going to be a dolphin named Tuffy. He's Tuffy the dolphin. Oh, boy. And he was quite a successful experiment, apparently, and could help rescue deep sea divers and find bombs and all sorts of things. And it's kind of like the canine unit for the bomb squad, but like the dolphin edition for the Navy, I guess. Fair enough. And in 1967, this program became classified because, you know, Cold War. Sure, sure. And the Point Mubu facility was transferred to the control of the Space and Naval Warfare System Center in San Diego. What research they were doing there with these dolphins and sea lions remained classified until 1993 is when all of this became declassified. Other fun, weird little things from this program that we learned in the declassified stuff is that there are five marine mammal teams, like still to this day, each trained for specific types of missions. Up to this day, dolphins have been used to detect mines which apparently they detected like 100 underwater anti-ship mines in the Persian Gulf area during the Iraq war in 2003. Uh, They do force protection. This one was like the one that was the most nuts to me, is that dolphins have been trained to identify enemy swimmers in the area, and they can actually bump into a device on the back of an enemy's air tank. So they can actually fuck with an enemy diver's air tank to make it explode, alerting the Navy personnel as to, like that the intruder is there and have arrived. Like, I don't know how they do this, but this is apparently something in, yeah, that they're trying to do. Object recovery and then, yeah, a whole bunch of other stuff. So there was no declassified things that they ever tried to get dolphins to decode stuff. <laughs> but this decoding dolphin that used to work for the Navy during, yeah, like the Cold War or whatever, not as far-fetched as one might assume, because I was like, the fuck? So apparently there was this whole program. Well, uh, Occam's Razor, that I guess. peripherally aware of. And William Gibson drew off of as this, like, tongue-in-cheek dark humor thing about the militarization of technology and wetware in this case mammals another random strange aside is that one of the people that we know that works in hospital systems in it for hospitals used to work for a large hospital corporation that got one of the defense contracts or something for the u.s government And he mentioned that he remembered at the time when they got this defense contract that the potential patient intake forms actually had to be altered to include a range of mammals. And dolphins were on that list. So crazy, crazy. So, yeah, dolphins, cyborg dolphin. That was like my favorite random deep dive that I came across on this movie. I was like, holy shit, we have Navy trained dolphins. And of course, like, yeah, when this is declassified in the 90s, like, PETA was pissed, understandably, because oh, yeah. they're like, yeah. the fuck. So, yeah. So, this is, there's this is a, a dolphin, and the dolphin can hack things, and the dolphin can help Johnny hack the stuff that's in his brain without the access code pictures that he has lost. Once again, how? No one knows. Yeah. Have no knows. you ever done this before? Has the fish ever done this before? And that that's really rude of Johnny to keep referring to this to Jones as a fish. Like, 
Yeah, they keep reminding him he's a mammal, but right. it is another cool, just bro. amazing line read where like, nah, they're like hey, that. we'll yeah. just hook you up to this neural machine. And he's like, have you ever done this before? Has the fish? And you're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Calm down. He's but also what, yeah. weird line. Yeah. Weird, great they are line. doing, I'd like the makeup job that they're doing on Keanu here because they're making him like, they're giving him more shade under his eyes and making him look more ragged as time goes by to like show that he's deteriorating as the the synaptic seepage begins, because the data, yeah, is seeping into his brains, you know. <laughs> Although it seems like that happened automatically the first time. So here's like another thing that's just kind of like, well, so he only has 160 gigabytes of storage, and they put 320 in him. So whatever didn't go into the gigabyte had to go directly into his brain tissue. Mm-hmm. And so what the extraction process for that isn't clear if that data is already lost because it didn't actually go onto a hard drive or can your brain actually function as a hard drive, like a backup hard drive, in which case, why do you even need like the hard drive? Why not just upload everything to the wetware? I don't know. I don't know, but this is Dolph a movie Lundgren, of quality, like, preacher, cyborg preacher's back. Yeah, the cyborg, <laughs> it's Jesus time. Yeah, with the uh, announcement that it's Jesus time. So he comes yeah, crashing th- in. This is after we've taken out the thumb guy ninja. He's he's dead. He's the one character from the short story that actually shows up to this scene. And in the short story, he's killed off by Molly. So, yeah, there's no fight scene between Thumb Guy and Jane to mirror that whatever. That guy dies, Preacher shows up, and he's throwing people around, and eventually they kill him with, I think, sound waves from the dolphin. And Dolph Lundgren is not selling this death scene at all. He's he's saying something like, Oh, ah, ah, like as much emotion as I'm putting into that is what we're getting from Dolph Lundgren. Which in this is about scene. the emotion that he's put into the rest of the movie. Yeah. So it it stays consistent with his character. It's annoying because I've seen Dolph Lundgren in roles where he really does commit. He's just checking into the no cell motel on this thing. He just does not give a shit in this movie. And this scene it's exemplified in this moment where he's just kind of lightly moaning as his body is apparently being torn apart by whatever he's being hit with. So Preacher's dead. He dies. The AI's there. Uh, the Takahashi, AI shows back up. He, he's there the too. Machine. He somehow, Takahashi somehow got there. Yeah, he, he did. He just suddenly got there. Although in the Japanese edition, we do have more scenes that provide a little bit more context as to why he got there. Like he's finally going to at some point talk to this AI and find out that like the Noskir is in Keanu Reeves. And so he's going to go and actually listen to this mm-hmm. magic AI who, as it turns out, well, she's a bunch of things. So she's the original founder of Pharmacon, and she's super sad mm-hmm. by the fact that Pharmacon has become this great big pharma evil corporation that is keeping the NOS cure under wraps so that they can still just sort of treat it instead of cure it. And she's a Swiss citizen, apparently. Even in death. And that's cool, too. So at some point, we will learn that she became the first official cybernetic citizen under Swiss cyborg law in 2006. (laughs) The thing that's kind of fun about this is that also is oddly close to being prophetic because Neil Herbison will become the first officially government-registered cyborg in 2004. So that was actually pretty close. But he's a 
self-identified cyborg that is, I think, German, Austrian, like Swiss kind of area by birth, but lives in the UK. And he had to officially register as a cyborg in order for his passport photo to include his cybernetic enhancements in them because they had to like make a legal exception to let his cranial implants into his passport photo and so it was actually a really big moment in cyborg rights and cyborg law and that's actually like a whole big ongoing movement the cyborg rights movement they put forth a charter in 2016 so this push this undercurrent of cyborg identified individuals that are living internationally I've done a lot of actually ethnographic work with the the transhumanist community. They're really fascinating, great people and artists. But yeah, there's this big kind of um, constant rights movement and battle starting around this hmm. this time period in 2004, 2006. So another thing that was just like weirdly kind of accurate yeah. 10 years prior. Yeah, so she's the Pharmacon founder. She's the first cyborg, like registered cybernetic AI entity. Hmm. And she is Johnny Mnemonic's mother. Wait, is she? Apparently. She, I didn't catch that. Yeah, in theory. I don't is, know, remember if that's like... Is the, that stated? She's in, not in the short story, right? No, no, she's not in the short story. I don't, so I don't know if that's from interviews or what, but like, yeah, that's the general consensus is that she is Johnny Mnemonic's mother. Oh. That might come from flashbacks later, I Maybe, think, when he, he like does. flashes back to his childhood. Yeah. And she's in the flashbacks. But it's like, it's is one she? of those things where it's like, that's an unnecessary detail. Oh. Like, that's just too coincidental, you know? Oh, that's fine. I might be mistaken on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the general consensus. That, that that's like Johnny Mnemonic's leave, leave a comment on our MySpace, people. Let us know. Let us know <laughs> what the truth is. We'll Hot put take. you in the top eight. It's going to be great. Pharmacon. Yeah, I don't know. But <laughs> she, yeah, she shows up. I she's kind of inconsequential when she shows up. And Ice-T, meanwhile, is like, okay, so the dolphin didn't get all of it like we were interrupted by this preacher uh-huh. and the other yakuza guy and then takashi showed up and this like ai bitch like lots of things are going down <laughs> this dolphin you know he has a lot of stimulation how coming many bosses at. are there where do we have to fight to get to the final thing good lord him so like you only have one choice one route left and that's to hack your own brain yeah so, uh, <laughs> and it's like wait what uh, that was an option this entire time so <laughs> Johnny gets back in the thing. It's They don't jack into his brain or anything, I think, for this bit. He's just on some sort of chair, and there's a, a thing that's pulled down over his head, and it's, I don't know, it's cool. whatever. It's once again really cool. It's some sort of deep-sea diving cyberpunk helmet yeah. that's going to go over his cranium. Something like that. And we get some more CGI slash animation. It's kind of hard. Yeah, it is really hard to tell like what it is we're looking at for most of these. And he goes in and he... Hacks his own brain. Hacks his own brain. He gets the information. How? We don't know. I don't know. He just, he just does. He gets it out. So now the information is going to be uploaded. And so Ice-T makes the big announcement. Gets, on the, gets in his chair and says, hey, everyone out there, time to get your... VCRs ready. VCRs ready. Yeah, here it is, coming at you low-tech style VCRs. <laughs> so, do you love that out of all of these different things that they've been, you know, predicting about the aesthetic of the future, 
VCR remains one of them. How cool would it have been if he had said, all right, everybody, get your Laserdisc players ready. It's coming at you. Laserdisc yeah, style. Yeah, you on Laserdisc. Well, in part, this does... You kind of want to stay with VHSs and VCRs because of the cyberpunk feel, right? Because mm. once again, this is an alternate reality future projection of what would happen in the future if 1980s technology remained the dominant technology. Mm. So that actually tracks. Like, I was actually fine with keeping the VCRs. The thing that I find kind of hilarious in a weird way is that... This is coming at them low-tech style, which apparently <laughs> low-tech style in this world is like a cybernetic VR-fluent dolphin, a space satellite system, and a global broadcasting network. A little selective on what the low-tech is all that's about. Like, what is high-tech then? So we have, yeah, in a world without Wi-Fi or internet, like this is the still the low-tech option apparently. And... Yet they're going to use this low-tech option of all the things that I just said to globally broadcast what Johnny Mnemonic is hacking his own brain to get, which is the cure to NAS that they're just going to broadcast all over. Throughout this process, inexplicably, Ice-T can kind of see what's happening in VR space because it keeps cutting to him. So, yeah, Ice-T can maybe see into VR space because he's magic. And <laughs> then also inexplicably, like, Pharmacon across the way because we can see the giant big pharma Pharmacon building mm -hmm. in the distance. And it catches on fire, but oh, I don't know how. I don't even know what that's supposed to be. Did someone raid the place? Did all the Pharmacon employees just say, well... We're, we're fucked. Time to burn this mother to the ground. I guess in some ways, symbolism. Symbolism happened here. Symbolism. Oh, Pharmacon no, symbolism is burning, is burning, the, burning the place down. No. Although we don't really know what the NOS cure was, but I'm still assuming that <sighs> since Takashi was supposed to, or Takahashi, mm -hmm. was supposed to somehow make this his new raison d'etre to manufacture the cure, like they still need that production facility yeah, and whatever. It, but it's burning. It's burning to the ground. Sure. Some that, some dolphins just want to see the world burn. The cure, the information for the cure was seen on TV screens around the world uh, in like uh, in 30 seconds worth of video or something. The information, I don't know. It's, there's the cure. Yep. We got there it. There it is. Lay people, here's uh. some files. Maybe you know how to synthesize this drug. And... In the Japanese version, it's going to end here. Well, I mean, there is like the last moment of like pulling the preacher's there's body a, up. There's and a fake the out where like the burnt corpse of the preacher is starting to move, and then it turns out they're just like crane lifting him out, and they toss him over the side, and he goes in the yeah, river. And you're like, way to pollute yeah. our rivers. Mm -hmm. The Japanese version is going to end there because it was enough of an ending that they were able to deliver this cure of this viral plague to the world. Apparently, the American distributors decided that it wasn't a happy enough ending because being the self-focused assholes they were is like, no, it's only okay if Johnny Mnemonic himself gets a happy, positive, upbeat ending. <sighs> I mean, that's been Johnny Monic's like thing this whole yeah. time because we did brush over one of my favorite moments where he has like he loses his shit before he gets to heaven. You see that city over there? That's where I'm supposed to be. Not down here with the dogs and the garbage and the fucking last month's newspaper blowing back and forth. I've had it with them. I've had it with you. I've had it with all this. 
stands up, arms high in the air. I want room service! I want the club sandwich! I want the cold Mexican beer! I want a $10,000 a night hooker! I want my shirts laundered like they do at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. Yeah, so it's not a happy enough ending unless Johnny Mnemonic gets his shirts laundered so, and a 10 grand hooker. I'm surprised they didn't shoot an ending with him having a hooker and a club sandwich and a Mexican beer by his table or something. I know, right? So we do get this other added sequence in the American version of Johnny Mnemonic recovering his lost memories. So apparently all he needed to do was get the hard drive out and suddenly his memories just come back and uh, they were there a long I uh, I see he said that he needed a full r- restore at the beginning of the film so that implies that he has to get everything all the information out of his head first and then have some sort of operation to restore his it oh god I don't even I guess know. but like he didn't need the full restoration when he had the dolphin there by his side because the dolphin, his little bottle nose is full of secrets. Look, we're, we're running fan fiction at this point. able to access the memories point. and put them back. Okay. So, yeah. So The short story itself... It does not end like that. Yeah, it does not. Really, it, the main action of the story ends after Molly kills off some guy... And then after that, the epilogue to it all is that Johnny hangs out in low-tech heaven. And even the heaven is way different in the short story, because in the short story, since we have this giant sprawl of cities across the entire eastern coast, they're all covered by gigantic domes. And in the short story, heaven is hanging from the top of these domes that are miles in the air. And Johnny just stays there with Molly, and they use... uh, Jake, the dol- they use the dolphin. Jones. Yeah, yeah sorry. I dare you disrespect Jones in such a way. <laughs> they use the... I, hey, I didn't call him a fish, okay? I'm, I'm better than that. I don't, He's got a name, man. He's got a name. His name He's is Jones the Dolphin. Jones the heroin-addicted dolphin helps Johnny decode all the information that's been in his head throughout all the years, and they use that information to blackmail prior clients of his and make a lot of money that way and <laughs> I remember one fun thing the book points out is that they have all the money they need and Jones had all the heroin he could ever want happy ending happy all the heroin you could ever want all around good for you dolphin it's, yeah it's a good a good time for the dolphin and then Johnny is eventually killed off as we're told later in Neuromancer that Johnny crossed the Yakuza too many times and they killed him <laughs> or something yeah and that is Johnny Mnemonic and it's a bad movie it's a disappointing movie it, yes what there are worse movies I think if I if I just said blanket term it's a bad movie and someone said why is it a bad movie I would say because it's a disappointing movie really I think that's why I should be saying this entire time to get more specific is that it's just a disappointing film there are really cool elements all the way through this thing and they add up to less than the sum of their parts Because I think in some ways it is unappreciated in the ways that it does work. Mm -hmm. 
So there are things that, yeah, the production design is very interesting. Its vision is very interesting. The scope of the things that it was tapping into. So of course, like from an anthropological lens on this film or a cultural studies lens Here on this go. film, it is an interesting piece of sci-fi because it is such a product of three distinct different time periods because we have the cyberpunk 80s thing coming in trying to be done in the mid-1990s about the 2020s and that stitching together the fact that this movie doesn't necessarily feel like a 90s movie is very interesting to me doesn't necessarily feel like an 80s movie either because 90s movies really weren't relying heavily on specific 80s nostalgia yet. Yeah. Because it was a little too early for 80s nostalgia. And at the time, using these 80s points would have been a little dated. And yet they did it anyway. And so there's a certain (laughs) bravery in that to look forward and say, like, no, we're creating this vision of a world of 2020 in which the 80s are going to be a very strong influence in the 2020s, even if they aren't right the second in 1995. Yeah. And that's cool. Like the mm-hmm. scope of that vision is very cool. Do I think it was executed in the best way it could be? Fuck no. no. Do I think that like <laughs> decisions were made in the editing that just made this movie in some places sad to watch because of how disappointing the potential is? Absolutely. <sighs> but yeah. I don't know if I would use the term bad like but i have a very high tolerance for bad because i've seen bad bad movies and this one is not one of them this one is a disappointing movie and it's mediocre on its entertainment level if you're Mm. not going to watch it from a critical how does this fit in with the sort of cultural studies of science fiction history if you're just watching it to be entertained you probably won't be yeah, I guess I should also specify that when I say bad movie, I'm not really saying that it's a movie that upsets me or offends me. This movie does neither of those things. It does not upset me. It does not offend me. It's just it's just sad to watch because I'm just watching this movie slowly peter out and dribble at me. With a momentary revival with uh, Jones, the cybernetic dolphin. (laughs) (laughs) Little heartbeat just picks back up for a second when you're like, the fuck is this thing doing here? Oh my god, there's a dolphin! Oh my god, the dolphin! And, oh, fuck, Dolph Lundgren's back. There are two dolphins in this movie. One works, one doesn't. Yeah. It's so strange. I would... Man, we need, like, current-day Keanu Reeves and John Wick crew to make Johnny Mnemonic. That movie would be amazing. Instead, we have some overhyped video game that only runs well on a console that nobody owns. That Cyberpunk 2077 video game that came out recently that I... I was going to say, I think that, like, the modern equivalent of Keanu Reeves doing Johnny Mnemonic is Cyberpunk 2077. And there's actually even some theories that that might be a sequel to Johnny Mnemonic. (laughs) Oh, very cool. I went on some, like, Reddit board deep dives for that. I mean, mostly tongue-in-cheek, like, sequel. I mean, people are aware that it's based off of the Cyberpunk 2020 game. For sure, yeah. I'm not a gamer, so I don't really know about that. I have a Nintendo Switch, and from what the internet tells me, that means I'm not a gamer, so... No, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's true. But <laughs> the fun thing about 2077, Cyberpunk 2077, very anticipated game that just came out this year, 
And it was fun to see Johnny Mnemonic actually start to circulate around discussion boards again when nobody's talked about Johnny Mnemonic in years. And somebody had posted, wait, Johnny Mnemonic is a movie where Keanu Reeves plays a character who smuggled data in a hard drive linked to his brain that everyone is hunting him down for. Cyberpunk 2077, a man for hire, has a chip linked to his brain that contains Keanu Reeves's conscious mind. Who, by the way, <laughs> Keanu Reeves's character is named Johnny, um, that everyone is also hunting down. So the premise here is, yeah, we've got Keanu Reeves plays a character named Johnny, Johnny Silverhand in Cyberpunk, but instead uh, of mnemonic, okay. because he now has this sort of Winter Soldier style prosthetic arm that's hmm. silver. And so okay. really on the nose, right? Johnny Silverhand. And he's kind <laughs> of this like rock star asshole or whatever. And... Yet that doesn't mean he can't be also Johnny Mnemonic with just a new moniker last name now that he has a silver hand because he didn't have a silver hand back when he was Johnny Mnemonic. He was having a hard time remembering things, but now he remembers things and he has a silver arm. So now, you know, he's the same character (laughs) and he's still just stirring up shit and being an asshole. And so at some point, somebody actually manages to kill him and his consciousness that was stored on a hard drive is implanted into the main protagonist in 2077 who like kind of wakes up with this guy's consciousness Mm. in him and is still being hunted for this consciousness so i'm like you know what technically 2077 based on the cyberpunk 2020 like game but sure i don't care the science it works out and so (laughs) i support this theory and 2077 seems to also be aware of like a lot of it, the possible overlaps and references it's making because there is an Easter egg in it where you come across this like wall of the Revere like courier services and there's this particular ad where there's an X-ray of a man's head with a storage device inside claiming that like the first 80 gigs are free. <laughs> what? So it has a giant mnemonic reference like built that, into yeah, it. Yeah, okay, that's deliberate. That had to be. So yeah, I mean, like it's giant a deliberate mnemonic. giant mnemonic reference. Like they're aware, but okay. um, like mm. whether you know to the extent that this is you know an official sequel. But I'm like, you know what? I believe. I believe that like yeah, Johnny Silverhand, and Johnny mnemonic, same person. Just mm-hmm. Johnny Silverhand is what he became when he was living it up before he got murdered by the yakuza. In it. Mm. In for it. <laughs> Oh, well. Top five? Top five. Super quick. Top five. My honorable mention goes out to Henry Rollins. It's a small part in this film, but I just love movies where Henry Rollins yells at people. And one hilarious thing I've seen him say about about him being in movies is that he never really intends to be an actor he has no you know aim at that it's just his agent tells him like no you're popular you need to go out and do auditions for movies and so he'll often when he goes to auditions he just does the craziest shit possible and makes no attempt to act or give a performance he'll just read the script in the craziest way possible and he says after i do that if i'm called back and put in the movie it's really their fault for casting me not mine so he just he kind of loves showing up in movies and sabotaging things a little bit in his own punk way. It's fun. I can't help yeah. it if I'm a gorgeous fiend. It's just the cards <laughs> I drew. Is your action number five? My number five is Robert Longo. You know, you tried. He did. I'm sorry it didn't work out. But, uh, you know, you make it four into movies, you take a risk, and... You got dealt this bizarre hand of wanting 
a million dollars and then being told, nope, have too much money and make the movie now. He's never made a movie before, hasn't made one since, and, you know, he was just out of his elements. So I can't really put the blame on him. It's, you know, there's no one person to blame for the way this movie came out, obviously. And it's certainly not Robert Longo, and I want to give him credit for at least, you know, stepping up to the plate when it was obviously a tough situation to be in. Yeah, honorable mention goes to Udo's Bodyguards, because oh, right on. I want their movie. I just want the story <laughs> of their lives. And yeah. my number five also goes to Robert Longo, but in conjunction right. with William Gibson. So that duo, right. because they really mm. made this film together, where Gibson sure, was writing yeah. it, Longo was you know doing his directorial thing-ish. <laughs> Ooh. I think they had a vision that they wanted to do in 95. Cyberpunk was a popular underground genre, but it really hadn't reached the mainstream. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of pressure on this movie in the 90s for this to be the moment that cyberpunk was like ushered into the more youth mainstream culture. And it didn't quite work out that way. (laughs) So I think they kind of get a lot of shit for that. But yeah, they're not traditionally filmmakers. They won't be again. They wanted to make an art house project. Didn't get to. Mm -hmm. So, but there are some moments in this that like, I see where they were trying to go with it. So Mm -hmm. production wise, it's great. Who's your number four? Number four is Ice-T because there's not a line he has in this movie that is not spoken without conviction. He is just so into this role. And I don't know what it is about Ice-T's speaking voice. Obviously, you know, his singing voice and rapping voice obviously is awesome. But his speaking voice is just so fascinating to listen to. And you never get tired of it. You know, the man's been around on, like, uh, SVU for how many years was he on that show? Or still on that show? I forget if SVU was even... He came in to SVU in the year 2000. So 21 years at this point. Yeah. And it just never gets old hearing him say things while he is mad or agitated or mad at someone. And my God, he plays his part so well in this movie. And it's just a performance that is, it's a shining star in this film. And I thank him for that. Thank you, Ice-T, for bringing the J-Bone to this movie. This might be just like, yeah, an easy uphill climb because like four, Ice-T. Oh, boy. So (laughs) Ice-T is so goddamn charismatic. (laughs) He's so much fun. (laughs) And I do, yeah, 21 years of watching Law & Order SVU has also impacted that opinion. But I just like that Ice-T just shows up in things and he just does things and they always work. They always work. Very true. Who's your number three? My number three is Keanu Reeves. Because I applaud his choice to do this film right after he had made Speed. Speed was a huge commercial success. It was beginning to show people that Keanu Reeves could play different roles than he had been in the past. You know, he wasn't the surfer dude anymore. He could be an action hero kind of guy and was on his way to what we would see later in the later 90s and much later in the 20-teens. There's a story that someone dumped this script on his doorstep and he's like baller move I'm gonna read this script now and read the script and just said wow that's really interesting I want to do that and that's a risk to take to do something very off the beaten path right after you've had a huge commercial success because you know success in Hollywood it's such a fragile thing it can be broken very easily and hard to come back from so you know points to him on that I had 
you know, obviously some things to critique about his performance that just weren't working for me. But like we said, there are some lines he does that are hilarious and are very well done. So I applaud that he took a risk on this and that despite a few moments being outside of uh, his uh, area of expertise in acting, he still puts off a very good performance that sadly does not aid the film as much as it should. Number three, Keanu Reeves. You know why? What the fuck, just fun. London? He's just fun what to watch doing? this. Not this whole like doing? waxing poetic about like where his career had gone, would gone, and will go yeah. or whatever. Just because you got parents and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's just gold. That's just fucking gold. He's great. He's super fun watching this movie. Oh, he should always have room service. Keanu should always have room service. I want room he goes. service. I need a computer. Like, yeah. It's fun. Super fun. Yeah. Just fun Indeed. to watch his face. Uh, my number two is just the production design overall for this film. The look of this film is the strongest aspect. Uh, like, you know, a lot of the things that we've covered before the colors in this film, the textures throughout the film are giving us as much of the cyberpunk feel as I think was possible to put in a mainstream film at this point in time. Art direction for cyberpunk and outrun aesthetics would evolve a lot uh, in the 2000s, but it was not, I think, a very well-defined look for cinema in the mid-90s. So I applaud everyone who did what they could to create the look of this film that is very distinctive, and I just wish had been able to flourish more in an independent setting than this movie allowed for. All right, number two. Once again, is going to go to the costume designer. The costumer on All this. Right, yeah. The costumes mm-hmm. are super fun. Udo Kier's, like, thing that he's got going on is just, like, <laughs> you can see, like, the gold in the thread count. Like, he's just, yeah. he's all shiny and... The extras in that club, what oh, the yeah. bodyguards are wearing, the fact that Jane's uh-huh. like wearing chainmail throughout this and PPC, whatever in the world Ice T is rocking, like yeah, that's the costumes are super fun. They're a fun, crazy blend. Yeah. Great mind. I thought you were about to say the costume design's amazing because you know it makes Udu Kier look really good. Okay, look, it's impossible to make Udu Kier look bad, so that's not a high bar to hit, but you are right that the rest of everyone else in this movie looks so cool. So, yes, very appropriate. My number one is going to go to Michael Dana. Who is Michael Dana? Michael Dana is the man that composed the Japanese score to this film, and that was by far the most fun thing to discover when I was researching all of this. And I've never watched two versions of a movie that have two different, like, two different scores just at all, but also to see such two disparate styles uh, put into the score of a film like this was just fascinating to get into and to analyze, like, what the different scores were creating on like on the screen between these two versions of the film and that was just really cool to get into side note michael dana he did the music to a film we have discussed eight millimeter yeah i was gonna say i remember bringing up michael dana before okay yeah so that he is my number one for all his great work in this film and great work that we've seen from him elsewhere fuck yeah my number one is the production on this film okay it right. is by far the number one most pleasurable thing about watching this movie, other than mm-hmm. just Keanu Reeves's 
face being Keanu Reeves is the <laughs> world that is trying to build and inhabit. The editing makes it very hard to fully access the space, especially yeah. where like the heaven haven thing is involved. It's very hard yeah. because of the camera angles and the editing to actually get a sense of where in the world that is located and what's happening there or how to get there. But you, didn't, you notice I didn't mention cinematography at all because it's this movie doesn't look bad, but there's just nothing interesting about the cinematography here. Like what we're shown looks great, but it's not filmed in any creative way. Uh, Francois Prateau, I believe, was the uh, Prateau, whatever French guy, filmed this, and he did okay. You know, it's like okay, I see it. It's in focus. It's lit. Yeah, but good job. Those. TV towers yeah. and that robot dolphin and the <laughs> everything, yeah, weird clubs that they go to. It, yeah, it's mm-hmm. all very cool. Everything that gets put in front of the frame is should be there. It's just we should have done more and different things with those things that were put in front of the camera. Yeah, we can always do better, London. But well, you yet, certainly can, are. or you could try. Okay. Yeah, I I lit myself outrun style for this. And no one can even see that. That's the effort I put in. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I'm I'm going to go make a MySpace page. <laughs> All right. So, well, that doesn't quite fit with the safe word because that's still an internet <laughs> endeavor. But well, look, yes, I, you... you don't need to. Uh, you don't need to make a MySpace page. I'm going to stay online. You can do whatever you like. Yeah, you go and you work on that MySpace page, but do it quickly, I guess, so that like the, the NAS doesn't like seep it. Actually, I don't care if the NAS gets you. What the fuck am I saying? <laughs> oh, yes. you all showed concern. Stay, you stay online. Stay a long, long time working on that MySpace page, Benji. Like, yeah, I'm, it's time to sign off. Perhaps completely and go Sanford style offline. Big boys with white legs that got modified features and software brains, but that's what the girls like. The geeks were right. When I saw the future, the geeks were right. Who are you? I'm J-Bone. I run heavy. We got parents and stuff? You got parents and stuff? Yeah. I want to get online. I need a computer! I want room service!
I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!